4: Radio Westeros, episode 15, and here's the latest news on the Battle of Fire.
5: Hello listeners, this is Lady Guinevere broadcasting from the Radio Westeros studios in King's Landing. We have a packed show today, covering the latest breaking news from around the world. But there's really only one story people need to hear today, and it's a big one. With the usurper Stannis Baratheon holed up in an icy crofter's village and going nowhere, the eyes of the world now turn east to Essos, where our correspondents anticipate that a large-scale war will soon commence. The city of Marine is besieged by a large Junkish force and military action now seems inevitable. So, the world has yet another war, people have named it the Battle of Fire, and we'll be assessing the situation very closely and following any action that breaks out. Radio Westeros has two correspondents on the ground, Yoke Boy and Brendan Beefish, one with each rival camp, and they'll be giving insights into personnel, troop numbers, military strategies, and the politics behind this tense situation. We also have Stephen Atwell from Race for the Iron Throne and Aziz from History of Westeros joining us for special guest consultation slots to aid our coverage. Let us be your eyes and listen with your ears. We are Radio Westeros and this is our look at the Battle of Fire.
4: Hi, this is Yoke Boy and I'm reporting from the besieged city of Marine. I'll be looking at the situation here, the politics, the hunger, and the defences in this suffering city. And we're going to tell you everything you need to know about
3: the Battle of Fire. Hi, I'm Brendan B. Fish, and I run the blog Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire. I'm currently outside Marine with the Yunkish camp. I'll be reporting on the strengths, weaknesses, and motives of the besieging forces during this broadcast. So stick around.
5: Okay, so the Battle of Fire. Marine is on a knife edge. With rumors of disease, famine, and dragons, we will endeavor to offer you a faithful investigation into this war at the edge of the world. We'll begin by taking a look at the conditions on the ground in Marine and in the Yunkish camp. Then we'll get a thorough overview of the troops from our correspondents and a look at the history of the region. We're going to begin right now, though, with a brief recap of the recent events in Marine and Slaver's Bay. We begin our story tonight by exploring the events leading up to this outbreak in hostilities. The root of this battle of fire seems to date back to when a small ship, a Targaryen queen, her small entourage, and three small dragons sailed into the port of Astapor. Daenerys Targaryen, seeking a way back to Westeros to reclaim her father's iron throne, needed an army. Apparently appalled by the slave trade, and with no coin to pay for an army, she used a trick and dragon flame to take a large, unsullied force from the Astapori. She freed the slaves of Astapor and her unsullied too, and won the hearts of thousands who then called her mother. But Astapor was merely the start of her campaign, and soon Yunkai Kai and Marine crumbled as well. The young Targaryen had gone from impoverished exile to major player in the east, seemingly within the blink of an eye. However, the revolution soon ran into problems, which we can focus on later, but it seems the pace of change that Daenerys brought to the region, and the aggressive manner of her liberations, laid the groundwork for future conflict. Daenerys attempted to quiet growing political turmoil within Marine by marrying his Lorak of local nobility, but with food shortages, an outbreak of disease, and frequent politically motivated murders carried out by the Sons of the Harpy terrorist organization, Marine has remained a city in crisis, and the Marinese pain doesn't end there. The Yunkai did not take kindly to Daenerys's military action in Slaver's Bay, and regrouped to invade and overthrow the new Astaporri regime the young Targaryen had left behind. Their army grew, and connections were made to powerful allies such as Karth and Volantis. With a Yunkish-led coalition on her doorstep, Queen Daenerys took steps to explore diplomatic options, including an exchange of hostages. At her new husband's urging and to facilitate peace within her city, Queen Daenerys softened certain principles and allowed the gruesome and infamous fighting pits of Marine to be reopened. However, her push for peace didn't go as planned. Not only was there an assassination attempt on her life, via poisoned locusts, but there was a surprise visitor to the reopening of Daznak's pit, The queen's black dragon, Drogon, flew into the arena, unleashing fire and blood upon scores of innocents. Daenerys was seen to mount the dragon and was on his back when he flew from the scene. Neither has been seen since. Some observers say they saw Daenerys fall, whilst others faithfully await the return of their beloved queen. In her absence, the political situation in Marine has become desperate. The Yunkai have used the death of their supreme commander, Yurkaz Zoyunzak, in the panic of Drogon's appearance at the fighting pit, as an excuse to break a fragile peace. Sir Barristan Selmi, leader of Daenerys' Queen's Guard, joined with Skehaz Mokandak, one of Daenerys' chief Giskari counselors and the leader of the Brazen Beasts, to arrest Hisdar Zolorak on suspicion of poisoning of the locusts. With all attempts at diplomacy with Yunkai having failed, Marine now has a large army outside its walls, a Carthine maritime blockade in its waters, and a Volantine fleet coming its way. To top it all off, Daenerys's other two dragons, now grown large and fearsome, are at large. We should pray to the gods they aren't as hungry as the people of Slaver's Bay. Both within and without, Marine is seemingly on the precipice of disaster. So, now we've had a grounding on the political climate, it's time to join up with our Marine correspondent to further understand the current state of the city. Hello, Yoke Boy. You're in Marine right now, aren't you?
4: Yes, Lady Gwyn. I'm outside, stood on a lower level of the Great Pyramid. From here, I have a view of the Temple of Graces, next Pit, and on the horizon, I can make out the gathered Yunkish host.
5: Mm, sounds like quite a view, and an ominous one for those of us who are holding out for a peaceful resolve. So, Yorkboy, boy, let's talk about life inside the city of Marine.
4: Okay, as you mentioned, there's a looming food shortage inside the city, as well as an outbreak of the dreaded bloody flux, known as the Pale Mare. But there's also many social and political problems in Marine as well, which doesn't make the situation here any easier.
5: Can you elaborate on that for us?
4: Well, in the face of the long-term harassment by the Sons of the Harpy in the city, Queen Daenerys had at first allowed her security forces greater latitude in questioning citizens, in an attempt to root out the secret sect. But she reversed her tough stance on the issue of hostages, when she refused to kill the noble children she held after a renewed outbreak of hostilities. And she chained her dragons, an action which would have consequences both good and bad. Then the involvement of many prominent Miranese nobles in the Yunkish naval blockade of the city isolated her even further. As you mentioned, she wed Hisdar at the urging of the Green Grace... After which she allowed the reopening of the fighting pits of Marine. While this was a minor triumph for a people who had been culturally disordered since the Dragon Queen's arrival, it was just a small thing in the face of the social upheaval caused by the freeing of slaves and the attempt to integrate freedmen into Myrinese society.
5: Queen Daenerys freed thousands of slaves and brought an end to many cruel social customs. Surely there must have been some positives that came from that.
4: Well, yeah, as you say, her reforms brought an end to some inhumane cultural practices, such as the slave trade and the barbaric fighting pits. But they also effectively ended a centuries-old way of life for the people of Marine. And with the destruction of the slave trade, this left an economic vacuum that the Queen could only try and fill. And while she did make efforts to establish new trade with the Lazarine and encouraged a new agricultural economy, these were measures which would take time to bear fruit. And in the moment, the Queen was too distracted by the ongoing political and security situations she had to deal with to do any more than that.
5: So, how would you sum up things there now?
4: Well, basically as it stands now, Marine is a city under siege with too many mouths to feed. It's got a looming health crisis, it's politically splintered into factions plagued by sectarian violence and shadowed by a symbolic resistance with an uncertain agenda. This is not to mention the two free dragons that now stalk the skies above after making nests in two pyramids.
5: Okay Yoke Boy, an interesting view on the state of Marine. We'll come back to you later. And so with Yoke Boy having given us some insight into life inside the walls of Marine, let's now consider what life is like in the Yunkish camp outside those walls. Brendan, are you there?
3: Hi Lady Gwynn, I'm right here amidst the Yunkish Army as we
5: speak. Can you talk us through what's going on in the Yunkish camps around Marine? Perhaps starting with a wide overview of the state of the Yonkai on the eve of war?
3: I'd be happy to. It's a really interesting atmosphere in the Yonkish camps. Apart from a few sellsword companies, I can't say with any certainty that the atmosphere is entirely militant.
5: And why do you say that, Brendan?
3: Well, it's really hard to say whether these are camps drawn up for battle or for coin. As we speak, there are three separate camps arrayed around the city of Mirin. To our north, Two Ghiscari Legions have taken position north of the Skahazidan River and have cut Meereen off from resupply. Meanwhile, in the east, another two Ghiscari Legions sit cutting the city off from any overland supply caravans. I'm here south of the city with the Second Sons, about a mile or so from the front lines, and this camp is a mess. Since peace was declared, everyone suspected that the Yunkish would be pulling up stakes and preparing to march home. But no one seems to be doing anything of the sort. The Yunkish lords have even built a slave market within Mirin's walls, and sent word to a Dothraki Kalasar that they're open for business. Meanwhile, some of the sellswords, and even some of the Excarii legions, sharpen their swords for
5: battle. So you're saying that the goals of the different factions are divided?
3: Definitely. There's no unity of purpose here among the various factions outside the city. Some of the sellsword commanders want to sack Mirin. The Yunkish lords aren't sure what they want to do, and the Ghiscari Legionnaires are consumed with disease spreading in their camps.
5: Well, we just heard from Yolk Boy that the Pale Mare is impacting Marine That has to be much worse outside of the city.
3: For a certainty. All the camps here outside of Meereen have been plagued by disease. And really, if I could editorialize a bit, it's really all the fault of the Yunkai. When the Yunkish sacked Astapor a few months ago, they ordered that the sellswords push the refugees north to Meereen. And their purpose in doing that was they hoped that the refugees would keep disease from spreading to Yunkai, the city itself, and they were also hoping that it would infect the city of Mirim with plague. But see, the problem is that once the Astapori got to Mirim, Daenerys closed the city gates to them. So when the Yunkish Confederation arrived outside of Mirim, it was impossible for the Yunkish not to set their siege lines close to the plague-ridden refugee camps. So, the Pale Mare is now riding inside each of the army camps.
5: Well, that sounds very grim. Isn't there anything that the military leadership of the Yunkai can do?
3: That's the problem. There really isn't much in the way of Yunkish leadership outside of Mirin. The Yunkai originally selected Yerkazo zo yunzak as their supreme commander, but when he was killed by a stampeding crowd of terrified civilians fleeing from Drogon, the Yunkish couldn't choose a new commander, so now they're rotating command day-to-day amongst themselves.
5: That sounds highly disorganized. How are the sellsword companies taking this?
3: Well, that's the thing. While the Yunkish pretended commanding, it's the sellsword commanders who seem to be directing day-to-day operations. One sellsword commander known only by the name of Bloodbeard is the one who is really calling the shots, at least in the south camp. And it was he who made all those extraordinary demands at the Miranese Court a few days back.
5: So, with Bloodbeard taking a leading role, apparently, is the feeling at the camp that at least someone is taking charge?
3: Maybe the Company of the Cat and the Yunkish Lords feel this way, but the sense I get from the other Cell Swords is that they're not very pleased by this turn of events. And that's really the rub here. There are too many independent factions within the Yunkish Confederation. Take the Tatter Prince, the Windblown. Just one year ago, the Windblown and the Company of the Cat fought on opposite sides of a war in the disputed lands. It's an open secret that the Tatter Prince and Bloodbeard despise each other. And now they're on the same side, but only Bloodbeard is calling the shots. We've heard rumors that this term of events is sitting poorly with the wind blown, and while Brown Ben Plum has been all crinkly-eyed smiles when dealing with the Yunkish, we've heard rumors that he's taken a few fugitive slaves into his service, slaves that have been urging him to betray Yunkai. We've even heard a very unlikely rumor that one of these fugitive slaves is a fugitive known as Tyrion Lannister. And that's my opinion on the state of the Yunkish camp, Lady Gwynn. I'll be back later for a report on their troop sizes. Talk to you then.
5: Thanks, Brendan so we have a good overview of the moods running through both parties as we edge closer to conflict and now it's time for an advert from marine
6: hello listeners of radio westeros this is jahaz mokandah also known as a shave paint and leader of the brazen beasts in marine we have some problem worse than the big rats of our sewers there are real vermin they call the sons of the harpy. They are so much cowards they attack at night, killing innocent freedmen, and take the blood of their dark slaughter to make a sign of the harpy. I have tickled every man allowed by our queen, and sometimes their daughters too. But confession has come too easy, and so the sons of the harpy still not been found. I am not even allowed to kill noble child hostage and so this shave pate needs help of Radio Westeros listener. If you know any of information that can lead to Sons of the Harpy please find me at the Great Pyramid and help us rid of this vermin. Big prize for information is a brazen beast mask made of brass. Choose from Air, boar, jackal, hawk, heron, locus, seal, rat, lion, tiger, ape, owl, cat, serpent, wolf, basilisk, and fox.
5: And that was the shave pate with an appeal for information about the Sons of the Harpy. And there'll be more adverts running through our coverage. So now let's go to Yoke Boy and Marine for an assessment of the troop numbers on that side. Hello again, Yoke Boy. Hi, Lady Gwen. So, with battle imminent, what listeners really want to know is just how large this war could be. Can you give us any kind of breakdown on the forces you've seen or heard about there in Marine?
4: Yeah, no problem. The Myronese forces seem to total anywhere between twelve and fifteen thousand men, organized into about ten to twelve thousand infantry and two to five thousand cavalry.
5: That's a serious military force there. And they'll need every last man if they're to prove victorious against the Yunkai. And just how are these troops divided up?
4: Okay, let me give you a full breakdown of the different factions. It's a mixed army, but not one that should be underestimated. And let's start with the large contingent of Unsullied. And these Unsullied are both the largest element in Baristan's army, as well as the core of Daenerys' supporters in Meereen. These are the most fearsome warriors at Baristan's disposal. And most of these Unsullied had been trained from a young age in Astapor to fight as slave soldiers. When Daenerys freed them, they elected to stay with her and fought in her initial campaign at Astapor, Yunkai and Marine. The Unsullied, of course, are eunuch warriors who fight on foot. Perhaps the fiercest infantry unit in the world. And each Unsullied is armed with three short spears, a sword and a shield.
5: So, the army of eunuchs that Daenerys took from Astapor and then subsequently freed seemed to be loyal regardless, and we're going to have Stephen Atwell in for a close look at these renowned warriors a little later on.
4: Yes, yeah, Stephen can fill you in on the history and traditions, but for now I'll say that these guys are first-class spearmen, obedient, organized, and not an opponent you'd want to ride into. They excel against cavalry, and more efficient as a defensive unit. How Barristan chooses to employ his unsullied will be very interesting.
5: And what's the headcount for these unsullied, Yoke Boy, and who is their captain?
4: Well, we're looking at about 8,000 unsullied, all ready to die for this cause. And the captain is called Grey Worm. He was elected by the unsullied, so imagine that he doesn't scare easily.
5: And what's your verdict for the Unsullied making a big impact in this war?
4: My verdict is that they could make a huge impact. Some Unsullied will be needed to guard the city. However, they still have huge numbers. With their organisation, they should be a force to be reckoned with. But remember, they fight like a unit, so a lot will depend on their ability to make a strong formation outside the city walls.
5: Okay, so what else does this Marinese army have up their sleeve?
4: Well, next we should talk about the three companies of freedmen. These were mainly slaves, Daenerys freed in Astapor, Yunkai and Meereen. So three ragtag groups of men, seemingly loyal to their queen Daenerys, and they total around 2,000 men. Again, loyal to the woman who struck off their chains and in no rush to step into the waiting shackles of the Yunkai.
5: No, I'm sure they aren't, and you can bet freedmen will fight with everything they have. So can you tell us who these three factions are and who commands them?
4: Yeah, let's start with the Mothers Men. They're commanded by an Unsullied named Marzalan, who I hear is the brother of Daenerys' translator, Miss Missandei. Next, we have the stalwart shields, led by Yolono Dazjob, and oh, actually, I'm just being told that Yolono Dazjob has sadly passed away.
5: Hmm, was it the sons of the harpy or the pale mare?
4: Well, it had to be one or the other, didn't it? And this was the work of the pale mare. And I can't emphasize enough the devastation this disease has brought to the suffering area. Yolono Dazjob, rest in peace. And I'm hearing that in his place, Tal Terak steps in, who's originally from the Summer Isles.
5: OK, and who's the third group of freedmen?
4: Lady Gwyn, the third group is called the Three Brothers, commanded by Simon Stripeback. Stripeback?
5: Is he named for a Zorse or a Tiger?
4: Well, Lady Gwyn, this moniker is unfortunately more sinister. He's named for the stripes of scars on his back. He's clearly had a taste of the slave master's whip in his past.
5: Hmm, unfortunately, an abundance of terrible backstories for these freedmen, and this war is likely to cause many more. So, Yoke Boy, are there any more troops we should consider?
4: Yes, there's more. So let's talk about the brazen beasts and the storm crows. The brazen beasts, it's rumored, will be left to guard the city with some of the unsullied. And this puts a lot of power in the hands of the leader of the Brazen Beasts, the Shavepate. He is an anti-Hizdar man, and that is no secret here. Whether he can be trusted with Hizdar and child hostages as Barristan rides off to war is certainly open to debate.
5: So, it seems like leaving the Brazen Beasts as the City Watch could free up troops, remembering that the Myronese are outnumbered here, but it harbors the risk of the Shavepate making some volatile political calls whilst the battle rages. And so what about the Stormcrows?
4: So the Stormcrows were a sellsword company numbering around 500 men, all cavalry. They're the quickest, most mobile group at Baristan's disposal, and so could be very, very valuable on the battlefield.
5: So that's all for Baristan's main contingent, but he does have some smaller factions, is that true?
4: Yes Lady Gwyn, Sir Barristan has been training former pit fighters and other freedmen, and apparently has knighted some. Notable members of the group include the Red Lamb, Larak, and Tumko Low. This group has around only 26 members, but I did get a glimpse of the Red Lamb, uh, Lazarine former slave, and I can tell you that he looked fierce.
5: Well, we'll keep an eye out for the Red Lamb if it comes to battle, then.
4: Yes, keep an eye on him. And talking of pit fighters, there's also around 200 ready to fight. These fighters are rowdy, fearless, and it seems ready to die for Marine. They're aggressive and could be useful to barrister. However, we could question where their loyalty lies, as they seem to favour his dar who, of course, was arrested by Barristan. So, I'd keep a close eye on those pit fighters.
5: Okay, we will do. And are there any left of Daenerys' Dothraki contingent?
4: Well, I'm hearing around 20 of these Dothraki who've followed Daenerys since she hatched the three dragons. It's a modest number, but they're fierce and loyal. And, Lady Gwyn, that's all for the Merenese army. And those within the city walls will be praying that it's enough.
5: Yes, I'm sure they will be. And thanks so much for all this information, Yoke Boy. Okay, so we're all up to date on the Marinese troops, but Radio Esteros must report with balance. And so now we will go to Brynden for the lowdown on the enormous and diverse Yonkish army. Good morning, Brynden. Can you hear me?
3: Yes. Hi, Lady Gwen. I can hear you.
5: Okay, so both our correspondents are in the thick of it now. So Brendan, the Yunkai, not really known for being a military powerhouse in Slaver's Bay. What changed?
3: Well, it's a combination of things, Lady Gwynne. A lot of it comes down to anger and the profit motive. Daenerys' campaign through Slaver's Bay angered the sensibilities of the Kaskari nobility who inhabited the region. Yunkai especially was incensed by its military defeat and humiliation at the hands of Daenerys a few months back and they became angrier still when she compelled Yunkai to give up slavery. Of course, Yunkai started slaving again just as soon as Daenerys' army had marched out of sight.
5: And you mentioned the profit factor as well. What's that all about, Brendan?
3: Well, from talking to both the Yunkish and the sellswords here at the camp, there's an undeniable desire to sack the city of Murine and carry off its riches in people. In fact, this was the selling point that the Yunkish lords used to entice sellswords to take contract with them.
5: And these Yunkish lords, are they in charge of this massive host of soldiers surrounding Marine?
3: Sort of. Like I kind of indicated in my first report, there's no single high commander of the army. Instead, the high command is rotating day to day amongst the Junkish lords. Yesterday was the girl general. Today we've heard rumors that it will be Gorzak Zoharis. Tomorrow, who knows. Our sources inside the Second Sons camp indicate that the day's commander is announced only the day of.
5: Hmm, that seems pretty chaotic. Brendan, tell me, did these Yunkish lords bring any soldiers to this battle?
3: Yeah, they did, though the quality of these soldiers has left many of the more veteran sellswords uneasy, mostly because the soldiers that Yunkai brought to Mirin are all slave soldiers. That is that they're not professional at all. From what I've been able to observe of them over the past few days, they've mostly been former personal slaves of the Yunkish lords. And just to give you an idea of the type of slaves that the Yunkai brought to Miri, there's the so-called herons, that is, men seven to eight feet tall, wearing stilts to boost their height. We don't know if the unit has a real name or not. The given name of heron is what the Swords call them, due to their long stilt legs, pink scaled armor, and metal beaks fastened to their noses.
5: Wow, soldiers on stilts wearing pink armor. That must be some sight.
3: Yeah, I've never really seen anything quite like it, Lady Gwen. They look like something from the mummer shows I watched as a child, and they're commanded by an ironically short yunkish lord known as Pazar Zomirak, whose swords around these parts call the Little Pigeon.
5: Okay, so besides the herons and the Little Pigeon, what other weird and wonderful fighting units have you laid eyes on?
3: Well, one last slave unit I want to draw your attention to is the Clanker Legion. This group of slaves quite possibly has the cruelest lot of any slave unit on the battlefield. They are all chained together, Better for them not to run away, says the clanker lords, their so-called commanders.
5: Hmm, so we see here how determined these masters are to keep their slaves in chains. Okay, so how many slaves have been pressed into service in total, Brendan?
3: It's a massive number. About 30,000, I'd say.
5: 30,000? That is an impressive number. But that's not the most important thing that Yunkai brings to the table, I've heard.
3: That's right, Lady Gwynn. Perhaps the most important things that the Yunkish bring into battle are six massive trebuchets, with the fearsome names of Dragonbreaker, Herodin, Harpy's Daughter, Mastin's Fist, Ghost of Astapor, and finally, there's the Wicked Sister, which is positioned just a few meters north from where I'm standing.
5: Six giant trebuchets. How ever did the Yunkai get them to Marine?
3: Well, the trebuchets were shipped north to Mirin from Yunkai piece by piece by the Yunkish fleet, and then assembled south of the walls of Meereen.
5: Wow, that is an impressive engineering feat. Okay, so moving on from the slave legions, who's next?
3: Well, the largest single force outside of Mirim is the legions from Nugis. There are at least six legions on the ground right now, and there's a possibility that more are on the way.
5: And is it possible for you to give us a little bit of background on these legionnaires and how they're armed?
3: Sure. The Ghiscari legionnaires are citizen soldiers from the island city-state of Nugis that serve three-year terms. They're armed similarly to the Unsullied, but unfortunately their short terms of service mean that their training and experience as soldiers is not as thorough as the Unsullied. The legions of Nugis bring another fearsome force into the battle. One hundred massive war elephants who will look to use their massive size to smash through any cavalry and infantry force that the Myronese can throw at them.
5: But from what we're hearing in the studio, it's not all good tidings for the legionnaires. News has reached us here that the Pale Mare is currently riding through the legions of Nugis' north of the Skahazadan, and we've received recent reports that the disease has spread to the legions of Nugis east of the city of Marine.
3: That could definitely have an impact. Before the plague hit the camps, Gaskari commanders were boasting of having around 36,000 well-trained troops ready for battle. But knowing that now, who knows for sure how many spears Nugis can deploy.
5: So, some uncertainty there. So, who can you tell us about next, Brendan?
3: Well, Lady Gwynn, we've heard that there's a Carthian Camel Corps somewhere around here. And they're being used because horses hate the smell of camels, so the camels seem intended to counteract the strong sellsword cavalry that Daenerys brought to Mirene.
5: But the Camel Corps are not the only Carthian that are outside Meereen, isn't that right?
3: Yeah, that's right, Lady Gwynn. The Carthian navy is blockading Mirene from Slaver's Bay. And in one of the more thrilling scenes I've ever seen, I witnessed three Carthian ships successfully sprint up the Skahazdan River, despite heavy arrow fire from the walls of
5: Wait, why would the Carthine ships sail up the Skahazadan?
3: Well, Slaver's Bay isn't the only waterway into Mirene. The Skahazadan river flows from numerous peoples and cultures east of Merine. We've been told that the Carthine ships are further afield east of Mirene blocking all riverine commerce into the city.
5: Very interesting. Marine has enemies all around, apparently. So is there anything else out on the water?
3: Well, the Yunkish are really excited about the fact that Volantis has entered the city's side in the war. Historically, the Valentines have been able to field navies as large as 500 ships. So the Yunkish lords have been chattering amongst themselves about what they intend to do with Meereen once their Valentine allies arrive.
5: But we've heard reports of high tension in Valantis between the ruling elite and its massive slave population. We've even heard reports that High Priest Monero and the Red Temple of Valantis has officially endorsed the position that Daenerys Targaryen as Azor High reborn. Huh.
3: That's pretty interesting, Lady Gwyn. I can't speak to that on the ground right now, as the fleet hasn't arrived, but that could potentially be a significant factor when the Valentines arrive. Their ships are rowed by slaves, after all.
5: Yes, I'd imagine that could be significant. And there are also smaller contingents of soldiers fighting on behalf of Yunkai, right?
3: Yeah, that's right. I've seen Telosi slingers practicing their craft, albeit in a cruel way. They've been throwing lead balls at chained slaves to improve their accuracy. We've also seen about 300 crossbowmen from the island city of Illyrio. If the Miranese can sally forth against Yunkai, these men will likely be extremely dangerous.
5: But the Tolosi slingers are not the best soldiers in the field for Yunkai. Like you alluded to at the start of your segment, the Yunkish put out the word that they were looking to hire multiple sellsword companies to accompany them on their campaign to Slaver's Bay, and several companies took contract with Yunkai.
3: That's correct. The Yunkish hired three sellsword companies prior to setting out from Muyonkai, and they had the good fortune of having a company turn cloak on Daenerys Targaryen as they marched north to the city.
5: And can you walk us through these sellsword companies?
3: Gladly. Well, first up, we have the company of the Cat, commanded by the notorious sellsword commander known as Bloodbeard. He commands about three thousand or so veteran infantry. Some of the other sellswords have been bitterly complaining recently as Bloodbeard has unofficially assumed the role of Supreme Yunkish Commander since the deaths of Yezin and Yurkaz.
5: And is there more to this rivalry than simple jealousy?
3: Yeah, absolutely. This brings us to our second sellsword company, the Windblown. Now the Windblown are a force of about 2,000 or so heavy horse commanded by a person known only as the Tattered Prince.
5: Can you tell us anything about the background of the Tattered Prince?
3: Well, he's a notorious sellsword commander who allegedly was once selected to be the Prince of Pentos after the last Prince of Pentos was beheaded. Instead of taking on the alleged great honor of becoming the Prince of Pentos, the Tattered Prince fled to the Disputed Lands to start his own sellsword company.
5: And you alluded to the fact that Bloodbeard and the Tattered Prince are at odds. What's the story behind that?
3: Well, Bloodbeard and the Tattered Prince were on opposite sides of a recent war in the Disputed Lands, so one can assume that they both lost men fighting each other.
5: Ah, well, that would certainly explain why they might hate each other. Yeah. And
3: there's also been a lot of talk about the loyalty of the Windblown. For a long time, the Tatter Prince was known to be found in the War Councils of the Yunkai. He recently reemerged from whatever it was he was doing with two Westerosi knights, who he personally assured me had no love for the Dragon Queen or her city.
5: Okay, so moving on, who else should we know about?
3: The Long Lances are another sellsword company that took contract with Yunkai. Their commander is Gailo Regan, an elderly-looking man who commands about 800 riders. The Long Lances are presently guarding the trebuchet known as the Ghost of Astapor.
5: And is it necessarily wise to have cavalry defending a fixed position?
3: In my opinion, probably not.
5: Okay, so you mentioned that there are now four sellsword companies. Who's the last one?
3: That would be the Second Sons, commanded by Brown Ben Plum.
5: Wait, is that the same Brown Ben Plum who fought for Daenerys, now fighting for Yunkai?
3: Yeah. I've gotten to know the Second Sons pretty well since I've spent most of my time in Slaver's Bay with them. From what I can see, Brown Ben Plum wanted Daenerys to turn her dragons against the Yunkish army moving up the coast. But Danny instead apparently changed dragons and refused to allow her dragons to be used against the Yunkai. The way I heard it from a drunk lancer, Brown Ben Plum and the Second Sons turned their cloak the first chance they got.
5: Okay, so there's some background on why they turned on Daenerys. What's their composition and strength?
3: It's about 500 or so heavy cavalry. Yunkai has placed them about a mile from their front line, pretty far from any action if hostilities break out. That's led some of the company to think that the Yunkish don't trust them, and given recent events, well, the Yunkish might be rightfully skittish about having the Second Sons too close to the front. And that's all I have on the Yunkish army circling Mirim. Back to you, Lady Gwyn.
5: Thank you, Brynden. An excellent and thorough breakdown of this huge Yonkish host. And I think it's clear that Marine is well and truly outnumbered. And now with our reports from Yolkboy and Brynden, we get a sense of the scale about this looming battle of fire. And hopefully we all have a better understanding of what's happening. This whole situation is on a truly epic scale. But the underlying issues are also large and very complex dating back a long time before Daenerys Targaryen set foot in Slaver's Bay. So now we welcome expert historian Aziz, who some of you might know from the History of Westeros podcast, to help give us an historical overview of the Slaver's Bay area. Hello, Aziz.
1: Hi, Lady Gwen. Thanks for having me on.
5: And we're glad you could join us. So, Aziz, we want to know about historical factors that still affect the Bay. Why don't we start with the ancient Giscari Empire?
1: Okay, Lady Gwen, no problem. So this area, in times of old, was part of the Ghiscari Empire. The tale of this fallen empire seems to begin with the city of Old Gis. The citadel is fallible, but popular belief amongst the maesters is that Old Gis is the world's first known city, despite claims by other cultures to the contrary. There are reasons to doubt the maesters, but if true, this makes the Ghiscari the most ancient of civilizations. It is said that the Long Night occurred during this time, before any others were capable of recording it.
5: And where is Old Gis now, Aziz?
1: Well, it's now in ruins, but it's located on mainland Essos, south of Slaver's Bay. It's a coastal city, roughly halfway between Astapor to the north and New Gis, an island to the south. And the founder of Old Gis was Grazdan the Great, a name that has remained extremely popular even up to modern times. Grazdan is credited as the first man to create a professional army, remembered as the Lockstep Legions.
5: And these were similar to the Unsullied?
1: Yes, exactly. And I know you have Stephen Atwell coming to talk to you about the Unsullied, but lockstep legions were similar. However, these legionaries weren't slaves, but free men. Anyway, the modern Unsullied do actually combine the two things Old Gis was most known for, the disciplined professional army and slavery.
5: I see. So we can see why Slaver's Bay is so proud of its Giscari heritage.
1: Exactly. And that is ingrained and goes very deep when we consider their history further. Using the great military advantage these lockstep legions gave them, the Giscari founded the world's first empire by subjugating their neighbors. It's a safe guess that many of these people were enslaved, partially or completely. The empire took the emblem of Gis, a harpy, a woman's torso with wings of a bat instead of arms, legs of an eagle, and a scorpion's tail, and its claws rested a thunderbolt.
5: An empire built on shackles and chains, it seems. And so how far did the Giscari empire stretch?
1: Well, Lady Gwen, it was huge. It ranged all over the known world to take slaves, even conquering Nath three times. They founded colonies as far away as the continent of Sothorios. This was a large, dominant, and advanced civilization in its time. Some of the pyramids that stand today in Slaver's Bay were built back then by slaves. One pyramid in particular was called the Great Pyramid, though it is now ruined Famous explorer Lomas Longstrider marveled at how large it must have been by viewing the base of the huge structure, which remains even now.
5: So the Giscari Empire, once mighty, is now a crumbled and ruined memory. Aziz, can you tell us how that happened?
1: Sure. The Giscari Empire was forever consigned to history by the Freehold of Valyria. The conquest occurred some 5,000 years ago when the Giscari lost their fifth and final war versus the Freehold. Old Gis itself was destroyed. Brick walls taken down, buildings turned to ash by a dragon flame, and significantly here, its fields were sown with salt and sulfur.
5: So Valyria ruined any future that Old Ghis had. Can you tell us a little more about these wars with the Freehold?
1: Well, the five wars between Valyria and Old Gis were great wars, with other powerful nations such as Sarnor taking part on one or both sides. Yet Old Gis won none of these wars. The Valyrians had dragons, which were an insurmountable advantage. It's said that the elite Giscari have lusted for dragons of their own ever since.
5: As Krasnys Monaclos and Astapor proved, unfortunately for them, one of Valyrian blood won that battle, too.
1: Yeah, so you can see how Daenerys and her dragons might have affected the political climate of the region, with the proud Giscari descendants having this history with Valyrians and dragons. And the Valyrian sowing fields with salt was just one part of a decimation of the region that's still being felt today. There's evidence that Old Gis and the surrounding regions were not the harsh deserts they are now. Forests destroyed by axe and dragon flame led to desolation. Some say this is why the Giscari turned to slavery, as it was their only economic recourse, although there's evidence they had been slaving prior to Valyria's existence. Furthermore, it is commonly believed that the Valyrians actually learned slavery from the Giscari in the first place.
5: So we see some of the root causes of the problems Daenerys Targaryen has faced when trying to overthrow slavery and support a hungry city after the liberation of Meereen. They might date back thousands of years. Now, what can you tell us about modern culture?
1: Well, modern Ghiscari are a mix of many races, and there are likely distinct physical and cultural differences between the pre-Valyrian war Ghiscari and the current. Some cultural traditions that may be ancient in origin include the wearing of the tokar, a fringed garment indicating elite status. The fringe of the Tokar is decorated with precious metals or stones based on wealth and power. The gods and language of Old Gis are mostly gone. The cities of Slaver's Bay speak their own dialects of bastardized High Valyrian, their version of their conqueror's language. The cities of Slaver's Bay, Marine, Astapor, and Yunkai, were Ghiscari colonies taken by Valyria after this conquest. In Astapor's case, the city was converted into a center for slave trade. Yunkai and Marine could have also been turned to this purpose, or they could have already been deep in the slave trade. It's currently unknown.
5: So Valeria had a high demand for slaves, and these cities generated large amounts of wealth.
1: Yeah, and due to the long history of these cities, in which they have gained chilling expertise in the training and breeding of slaves, they have come to dominate much of the slave trade market in the known world. All three feature the brick pyramids that the old empire was known for.
5: Okay, Aziz, so a quick summary of the three slavers' base cities.
1: Sure. So, Astapor is made from red brick and replaces the thunderbolt with manacles in adopting a modified version of the emblem of old Gis. They are known for producing unsullied and are ruled by the good masters. Yunkai is called the Yellow City and is known for producing bed slaves. They are ruled by the wise masters. Their emblem is the usual harpy, but in its towns are a whip and an iron collar. And finally, Marine is as large as the other two combined, is the northernmost, and is made from bricks of many colors. It's ruled by the great masters and is known for housing the largest fighting pits. There is a great pyramid there as well, brick of course, which stands 800 feet high.
5: With the three cities being so closely tied, it's no surprise that they're all involved in the current situation. And it's easy to see where the region's key historical moments have fed into this unfolding conflict and siege of Marine. Aziz, Radio Westeros, thanks you for providing us with this historical overview of the Slavers Bay region.
1: And on behalf of History of Westeros, thank you, Lady Gwyn, and goodbye.
5: So, thanks to Aziz, our historical consultant. And now, as everything's gone quiet in Slavers Bay, it's time for a quick discussion on how Stannis Baratheon is doing. Still hold up in that icy Crofters. Oh wait, hold on. I'm hearing in my earpiece that we have some fresh and breaking news from Marine. It appears that the Green Grace has news of Barristan's offer of peace terms. We're going to go live now to Yoke Boy and Marine. Yoke Boy, can you tell us what's happening?
4: Hi Lady Gwynne, and yes I can. Apparently Galaza Galaire, the Green Grace and Marine, is in talks with Barristan Selmi, and they're both in the Great Pyramid as we speak. Sources tell us that the Yunkai have flatly refused the offer of gold for the three remaining hostages and have demanded the deaths of the dragons. So, one can wonder if the Yunkai really want a peace deal or if they... Oh gods Lady Gwyn, something has just been hurled into the city from over the walls. As you can hear, the people of Marine are now in panic. This besieged city now seems to be under attack.
5: And this could be the moment we've all dreaded. It sounds like a declaration of war.
4: Yes, it does. Something has landed very close to where I'm stood. It must have been fired by one of those huge trebuchets.
5: Okay, let's go over to Brynden outside the walls. Brynden... Can you confirm that the Yunkai have thrown stones over the walls of Marine as an act of war?
3: It is an act of war, Lady Gwyn, but it's not stones they're firing. I'm right by the Wicked Sister now, and the Yunkish are indeed firing their trebuchets. But I'm afraid to say the trebuchets aren't firing stones. Instead, they're being loaded with diseased corpses.
4: Yeah, it seems that Brynden's correct. I can see the remains of several bodies, diseased, dead, and dangerous. I must head indoors now, Lady Gwyn. The panic of this crowd is increasing with the threats of the pale mare being flung our way.
5: Okay, so it now looks like war has begun. The Battle of Fire. And we will likely see a response from Barristan on the morrow. We can only pray to the Mother for the innocent citizens that will be casualties of the awaiting horror. Mother, have mercy on every man woman and child involved
4: are you unsatisfied with your life want some excitement some adventure some riches then come and join the windblown sellsword company i am called a tattered prince they say i am tattered and twisty a rogue yet those tatters fill my foes with fear and on the battlefield the sight of my rags Blowing in the wind emboldens my men more than any banner. My wind blown mercenaries number two thousand, yet still we seek more men. You'll ride to battle with us and come home richer than a lord. Ride with us, die with us, but first live with us. The wind blown, and now we ride. Please note, deserters will be judged harshly. I will send hunters after you. And if you're lucky, your foot will be cut off, so you will never run again. And if you're unlucky, you'll be sent to Pretty Maris. You will stretch out your dying for more than a moon's turn.
5: And welcome back. Just a few moments ago, war seemed imminent. But now we know, without a shadow of a doubt, that war has truly begun. We suspect that all-out battle will erupt shortly. During the break, Boy reported that they were moving, so we're hoping to hear from him soon. But before the battle breaks out in Marine, I thought it might be a good opportunity to talk with Brynden B. Fish about the tactical formations, strengths, and weaknesses that the armies bring to the battlefield. So Brynden, what in your opinion is the strongest unit on the battlefield?
3: So there are a lot of units here on the battlefield, from cavalry to spearmen to archers to slingers and even elephants. We're looking at a smorgasbord of different units and strengths. In terms of the strongest, as the so ably demonstrated, I think the Unsullied are probably the best unit here on the battlefield. Their presence has been the difference between defeat and victory in many occasions, but most famously, they defeated an entire Dothraki khalasar outside the walls of Cahor, despite being vastly outnumbered.
5: That's impressive, and we'll be talking with Stephen Atwell more about the Unsullied shortly, but briefly, how did they manage that?
3: It's almost entirely due to their discipline and their use of spearwall tactics against Dothraki cavalry. The Unsullied generally fight in phalanx formation meaning that they orient themselves, and most importantly, their spears, towards the enemy. Unsullied units can fight in depth, generally 18-24 to 24 men deep, in a more boxy formation, or they could be spread out over a wide area to cover more ground. Undoubtedly, Barrison will try to use his Unsullied as his main line of effort.
5: So, those are some of the tactical strengths of the Unsullied. Are there any weaknesses?
3: Well, as heavy spearmen, the Uncelliads are slow on the battlefield, so they can't react as quickly to any sudden movements or outflanking-like cavalry forces that the Yunkish might throw at them. And if the Yunkish hit the Unsullied on the flanks or from the rear with cavalry while fixing them with their own infantry, it could signal serious trouble for Barristan.
5: Okay, so we'll keep our eye on that. And what else do the Marinese have going for them?
3: There's three freedmen companies comprised of former slaves who have sworn their swords to Daenerys. We've also heard reports from these units that they've received training from the Unsullied. The only other two major units that Barristan has in his army are the Stormcrows and the Pit Fighters. The Stormcrows are deadly like cavalrymen who can sweep enemy skirmishers and other like cavalry off the battlefield, but they can also be deployed in a straightforward Lancer fashion as well. The Pitfighters are deadly individual warriors. They use a variety of weapons specially chosen for them to win their duels in the Fighting Pits of Mirim. That said, They lack unit cohesion, so their value might be found in creating chaos in the Yunkish lines.
5: Okay, so let's turn to the Yunkai now. How do you imagine that the various units will deploy if Barristan sallies out against their siege lines?
3: It's a really good question, Lady Quinn. At least here in the southern camp, the deployment is haphazard at best. At the front of our siege lines, the Yunkish have set some of their worst soldiers and their supposed vanguard. I think I mentioned earlier the clanker legions and the herons. Well. These poor souls are at the vanguard of the Yunkish lines. I suspect they're there mainly to slow any attack from Mirim, to give the real soldiers the chance to flank the Mirinis and engage them decisively. But who knows for sure what the Yunkish are thinking.
5: Okay, so those are the slave legions in the vanguard. What are the tactics and formations that the other units will bring to the fore?
3: Well, the Kaskari legions are similarly trained as the Unsullied, so we can expect a heavy spear front against any incoming Mirinis force, I think. That said, their training, as I indicated earlier, is not as in-depth as the Unsullied, so there's no telling what will happen once they come into contact with them. And the Windblown and the Second Sons are the main cavalry force that the Yunkai have brought into the battle. If the Yunkish were smart, they'd order these two companies to move into wedge formation and hit any Miranese force in the rear and the flanks. But so far, these companies have been ordered to defend the Trebuchets, fixed points. So the Yunkish are mitigating the tactical value of these horsemen on the battlefield so far. Otherwise, the Illyrian crossbowmen and the Telosi slingers will likely deploy front-forward to pick off any soldiers marching or riding against the Yunkish lines. Likely they'll be used to attempt to break up the unit formations that would move against the Yunkish lines. A unit is only as strong as its cohesiveness.
5: Alright now, let's talk about my personal favorite, the elephants and camels that Yunkai has.
3: Sure. So the elephants are fearsome creatures and use their size to carve holes through the army. But that's not their most important function. Their most important function is to spread fear among the soldiers that Barristan sends out for the battle. And as we've said, the Carthian Camel Force also has a really interesting function on the battlefield. They're essentially an anti-cavalry force that could be used to mitigate Barristan's cavalry. So Barristan and the Stormcrows better beware of any camel attack by the Carthian.
5: Alright, Brendan. Thanks for the tactical analysis. No problem, Lady Gwynn. And now, as we wait nervously for military action to begin, we're going to take a quick look at the largest unit in the Miranese force, the Unsullied. Joining me for this consultation will be political and historical analyst Stephen Atwell, the creator of the Race for the Iron Throne blog, and contributor to the Lawyers, Guns, and Money blog and podcast. Welcome to Radio Westeros, Steve. Glad to be here, Lady Gwynn. Okay, well, let's get started with an overview of the Unsullied and further our understanding of these respected warriors. Let's start with their history. Steve, where do the Unsullied roots lie?
7: Well, to understand the Unsullied of the slave cities, we must go back to the very dawn of civilization. As you discussed with Aziz and as Maester Yandel notes, the legendary founder of Old Gis, Razdan the Great, founded the lockstep legions with their tall shields and three spears which were the first to fight as disciplined bodies. Old Gis and its empire proceeded to colonize its surroundings and subjugate its neighbors.
5: And what was the secret to the success of the Giskari legions?
7: Their strength was really in their discipline. By learning to fight and march in literal lockstep, the legion would hit their opponents as one, rather as individual fighters. Each member of the legion would use their shield to defend the man to their left and in turn be defended by the man to their right Bring them to concentrate on fighting with the three spears.
5: Okay, so as I understand it, the three spears likely consist of two javelins to be thrown prior to the initial clash, weakening the enemy, and then a fighting spear that would be their workhorse weapon.
7: Exactly. And their solidarity as a unit was critical to success. As the front ranks of the legion slammed into the enemies, the men behind would add their weight to the men in front, pushing their way over the enemy like a human
5: battering ram. And as men fell in battle... Well, as men fell in battle, the men
7: behind them would step into their place, presenting an unyielding and seemingly immortal front line to an exhausted opponent. However, that same discipline would prove to be the death of the lockstep legions. As Daenerys Targaryen recalls, five times had Old Gis contended with Valyria when the world was young, and five times gone down to bleak defeat, for the Freehold had dragons and the Empire had none.
5: Okay, so such large, tightly packed formations of foot soldiers were the perfect target for the Valyrian Freehold's Dragon Riders?
7: Yes, exactly. They burned Giskari by the tens of thousands, and those who survived the initial flames were hopelessly trapped by the ranks of the dead. As Aziz said, the Giskari Empire crumbled and the Valyrians ruled them for 5,000
5: years. Well, nevertheless, the Giskari left their mark on the region. So let's go from the lockstep legions to the unsullied.
7: Well, the modern Unsullied came about only after the doom of Valyria ended the lives of the dragons Zim, and their riders. As Maester Yandel tells us, the cities of Slaver's Bay were able to throw off the last of the Valyrian shackles, ruling themselves in truth rather than playing at it. And what remained of the Giscari swiftly reestablished their trade in slaves. And the chief product of the city of Astapor were the eunuch slave soldiers called the Unsullied, men raised from boyhood to be fearless warriors who knew no pain.
5: And we can see the foundations of the old lockstep legions in the training of the Unsullied who train from dawn to dusk until they have mastered the short sword, the shield, and the three spears, and who fight in the fashion of the old empire.
7: Yeah, they are similar, Lady Gwyn. However, the Unsullied differ from their ancestors in one key aspect. The lockstep legions of old GIS were free, and the Unsullied are not. And because the Unsullied are slaves, their training has been intensified beyond what any free man would willingly endure. On a physical level, the Unsullied are chosen young for size and speed and strength, and then culled in training if they cannot run all day in full pack, scale a mountain in the black of night, walk across a bed of coal, to ensure that they are perfect specimens. Their training is so intense that only one boy in three survives it.
5: So, it's clearly an awful process. The production of the Unsullied must carry with it an astonishing level of human industrial waste, one that must be measured in the tens of thousands.
7: That's right, there's a very significant human cost. And the psychological training is, again, very brutal. The legions of old gifts fought for love of country as an act of free will. The Unsullied must fight for any master who buys them without question. Thus, the good masters of Astapor have ensured that they are absolutely obedient, absolutely loyal, and utterly without fear through a system of comprehensive dehumanization. It begins with their castration, so that no woman can ever tempt them, nor any man. And at that horrific moment, the masters give each boy a puppy on the day that he is cut. At the end of the first year he is required to strangle it. Any who cannot are killed. Thus, any signs of compassion, of empathy, of love are called from the ranks of the unsullied. And finally, to win their spiked caps, it says, an unsullied must go to the slave marks with a silver mark, find some whaling newborn, and kill it before its mother's eyes. In this way, we make certain that there is no weakness left in
5: them. Wow, and then all of this is reinforced with the wine of courage.
7: Yeah, they drink it with every meal from the day that they are cut, and with every passing year, feel less and less. So as a result, the unsullied are without fear, without pain, without emotion of any kind, that might tempt them to rebellion or hesitation.
5: And how does this brutal process affect and embolden them as warriors, Steve?
7: Well, whatever the morality of this system, we can see its effectiveness in the case of the 3000 cohort.
5: Ah, uh, yes, that. I have an account of that famous moment here. It was 400 years ago or more when the Dothraki first rode out of the east, sacking and burning every town and city in their path. The Khal who led them was named Temo, His Kalasar was fifty thousand strong at the least. The Kohoric knew he was coming. They strengthened their walls, doubled the size of their own guard, and hired two free companies besides. And almost as an afterthought, they sent a man to Astapor to buy three thousand Unsullied. By the time the Unsullied reached the city the sun had set, crows and wolves were feasting beneath the walls on what remained of the Kohoric heavy horse. But when dawn broke and Temo and his blood riders led their Kalasar out of the camp, they found 3,000 Unsullied drawn up before the gates. The Dothraki charged. The Unsullied locked their shields, lowered their spears, and stood firm. Against 20,000 Dothraki screamers with bells in their hair, they stood firm. Eighteen times the Dothraki charged and broke themselves on those shields and spears like waves on a rocky shore. Thrice Temo sent his archers wheeling past, and arrows fell like rain upon the three thousand, but the Unsullied merely lifted their shields above their heads until the squall had passed. In the end, only six hundred of them remained, but more than twelve thousand Dothraki lay dead upon that field, including Kaltemo, his blood riders, his Kos, and all his sons. So this battle made the
7: reputation of the Unsullied. In the history of the world, there have been many desperate last ends where brave men stood against impossible odds for a cause they believed in. But few soldiers would stand firm in the face of an 80% casualty rate for pay.
5: Well, how true that is. Steve, I want to thank you for sharing your analysis on the history of the Unsullied. It was really great to have you with us here today. Well, thank you for having me. Spoiler warning. The following presentation is based on Winds of Winter preview chapters and George R. R. Park public readings. Okay, and now we'll get back to the action with Yopoi, who's quite close to Sir Barristan Selmy.
4: Hi, yeah, I'm now near the western gate of the city, and Barristan's giving his orders. Some people look really frightened, and they seem to be more afraid of the Pale Mare than of war. And as soon as these gates open, there will be a charge. And we're just waiting for... And yeah, here's barrister now, who looks like he's about to speak. He really needs to improve morale. It's quite evident the Yonkish have the greater numbers here. And the crowd is gathered together. Lady Gwyn, cue some music, and let's hear what Barristan has
2: to say. Gather round me, man. I know what you are feeling. I have felt the same myself, a hundred times. Your breath is coming faster than it should. In your belly, a knot of fear coils like a cold black worm. You feel as though you need to empty your bladder, maybe move your bowels. Your mouth is as dry as the sands of dawn. What if you shame yourself out there, you wonder? What if you forget all your training? You yearn to be a hero, but deep down inside, you fear you might be a craven. Every boy feels the same way on the eve of battle. I, and grown men as well. Those storm crows over there are feeling the same thing. So are the Dothraki. There is no shame in fear, unless you let it master you. We all taste terror in our time, but take care that you do not seek death out there, or you will surely find it. A stranger comes for all of us, but we need not rush into his arms. Whatever might befall us on the battlefield, remember, it has happened before, and to better men than you. I am an old man, an old knight, and I have seen more battles than most of you have years. Nothing is more terrible upon this earth, nothing more glorious, nothing more absurd. You may wretch. You will not be the first. You may drop your sword, your shield, your lance. Others have done the same. Pick it up and go on fighting. You may foul your britches. I did in my first battle. No one will care. All battlefields smell of shit. You may cry out for your mother, pray to gods you thought you had forgotten, howl obscenities you never dreamed could pass your lips. All this has happened too. Some men die in every battle. More survive. East or west, in every inn and wine sink, you will find Greybeards endlessly refighting the wars of their youth. They survive their battles, so may you. This you can be certain of. The foe you see before you is just another man. And like as not, he is as frightened as you. Hate him if you must. Love him if you can. But lift your sword and bring it down. And then ride on. Above all else, keep moving. We are too few to win this battle. We ride to make chaos. To buy the Unsullied time enough to make their spear war. We ride for that dawn. The Red Dawn. The Dragon's Dawn.
4: Barristan preparing his men for war. Everyone is now donning their helms, and the scent of war is in the air. And now Larak is pointing to the Great Pyramid, where the Harpy statue once stood. And, yeah, fire has been lit, and that's a war signal, no doubt. Dawn is breaking to the east. The portcullis is being lifted, and the gates will soon open barristan is looking very determined and
2: may the warrior protect us all sound the attack
4: yeah and you heard that sir barristan has just ordered to sound the attack we have war lady gwyn and if you'll excuse me i must prepare to ride out with these miranese troops
5: Oh, a truly rousing and inspirational speech there from Sir Barristan Selmy. It really proves he hasn't lost his mettle after his dismissal from the Westerosi Kingsguard on Grounds of Age. And so, as the Maronese troops approach the Yunkai to begin this battle of fire, let's stay in the studio for just a moment and contemplate one factor which might play a crucial role, the fickleness of swords. Companies of sellswords that can be bought to solidify defenses or further a military cause are common in Essos and are usually comprised of soldiers from various origins. Men from Westeros do join such companies, perhaps most famously Agor Rivers founded the Golden Company. More recently, Prince Oberyn Martell famously served with the Second Sons. Whilst the slave armies of Essos have little choice in their part, sellswords will go to war for anyone who can satisfy their lust for gold. However, men who would fight and kill for gold are susceptible to one glaring weakness, loyalty. As Sir Kevin of House Lannister has been heard to say, any man who fights for coin is loyal only to his purse. Now, with just a quick glance at recent history, we can see this treachery evident in sellsword companies, even including those renowned for their loyalty. We have the brave companions, never well known for their honor, brought to Westeros at the behest of Tywin Lannister. All the gold in Casterly Rock couldn't stop Vargo Hope from turning on his employer and switching his allegiance to House Bolton when the tide of the War of the Five Kings was turning in Robb Stark's favor. And our journalists in Essos report that the Stormcrows turned cloak against the Yunkai and now fight for Queen Daenerys. Apparently, a blue-bearded man named Dario Naharis decapitated two of his fellow captains to facilitate the switch. And rumor has it, this maneuver was born from a desire to be in Daenerys's bed, rather than for gold. A plan which seems to have worked for Dario, if our sources can be believed. Next, we have the Second Sons, who also deserted Yunkai in favor of Daenerys. The story goes that after plying their leader Miro with wine, Queen Daenerys ordered an attack upon them. After a general rout where their captain fled, the Second Sons elected Brown Ben Plum as their commander and turned their cloaks. We hear their former captain Miro was later savagely beaten and thrown to the crowds by an old man with a stick, which sounds a likely tale. The Second Sons seemed happy enough to invade Marine. However, the plot thickens here as the Second Sons have now turned Cloak over to the Kai. We actually have a quote from Brown Ben Plum, whom we have a feature on later, who says, never trust a sellsword. So there you have it. These treacherous mercenaries don't even trouble to deny it. Finally, we have the case of the Golden Company, who have a long reputation of being the most loyal company in the world. The Golden Company have never broken a contract, is what military advisors would say. Well, we've recently heard that the Golden Company have broken contract with Mir. Nobody seems to know why. It might be for money, but our reporters believe it could be for a deeper reason. And they hear that some contracts are written in ink and some in blood, whatever that might mean. So when disgraced queen Cersei Lannister said, with her usual foul tongue, that loyal sellswords are as rare as virgin whores, she wasn't kidding. Those are just some examples of sellswords switching allegiance for reasons of survival, gold, and mayhaps even for love. With so many sellsword companies in play in the current battle, our one to watch for today is The Fickleness of Sellswords.
8: Welcome
5: back to Radio Westeros News. Dawn is approaching in Marine, and Sir Barristan has given an impassioned speech to his men. Battle is imminent, we're just waiting to see what and hold on. Yes? We can now go live to Yoke Boy, who has news of an attack. Yoke Boy, what's happening and where are you?
4: As you can hear, Lady Gwyn, I'm on horseback, closely tailing a Myronese contingent, headed for war. We've now left the market gate and are riding full pace to meet the Yunkai, and there's truly no turning back now. Sir Barristan Selmy has abandoned the safety of the city walls, and so battle is now a stone's throw away.
5: Tell us who's in this contingent you're tailing.
4: It's a cavalry group with stormcrows and Barristan squires. There's about 530 of us. ...riding hard for the Yunkish lines.
5: And can you tell us what you're seeing, Yilk Boy?
4: Lady Quinn, we're headed south. To my left is the rising sun, blood-red and bright. And we're ever closer to engaging with the Yunkai. We're riding a straight line towards the Haradan Trebuchet.
5: And who's leading this charge for the Marinese forces? It's Selmy
4: himself leading the charge after his inspirational speech... He's spearheading the attack, leading by example in his usual fearless way and trying to make the first kill. Leading from the front is in the best traditions of daring Westerosi commanders like Baelor Brakespear and Robb Stark.
5: And what else can you see?
4: Well, I can see Yunkish archers to the right, and we're very close, arrows are flying everywhere and it looked like Barristan just took a bolt through the shield.
5: Oh, Yoke Boy, please be careful when...
4: Let me stop you, Lady Quinn, because Barristan has changed his angle. We're turning right. We have cut west. I'm not sure what's going on. We were headed south, but now our lines have changed, and we're charging straight towards the herons on their stilts.
5: This sounds like a mistake. Do you have any idea what's going on, Yoke Boy?
4: Well this might actually be a masterstroke Lady Gwyn, as I adjust to Barristan's line. The huge morning sun is now directly behind me, and this will blind the herons. It's excellent tactics, the Yunkai won't be able to see a damn thing, and we'll be able to ride straight through them, and slice them up like cheese.
5: What a maneuver by Sir Barristan Selmy, using the glaring sun, the Red Dawn, as well as the element of surprise to gain an advantage. Remember, he said he wants to create chaos, while his Unsullied organize themselves into their formidable spearwall formations, and by avoiding the legions, he can spare his limited cavalry. Also blinded by the sun are the Junkish archers, who will be less accurate due to the glare, and it's...
4: Did you hear that, Lady Gwynne?
5: Yes, three horns.
4: Yeah, that's the signal that the pit fighters are on the move. We're close to the herons now, and I'll have to hold back and find a safe spot to watch this, Lady Gwyn.
5: So, serious drama unfolding as Barriston's cavalry now head toward the bizarre heron group, those men on stilts wearing beaks and scales. We'll get back to Yoke Boy soon to see how Barriston's cavalry got on against the herons. But now let's go over to Brendan B. Fish in the Yunkish Camp.
3: Hey, Lenny Quinn, can you hear that? That—that's the wind blowing. Can hear riding past me. They're probably on their way to confront Barrison Juggernaut right now. I'm gonna have a full report for you in a little while, but I have an update on the dragon situation. What I can confirm right now is that the green dragon is flying over the bay. The Second Sons have sighted the white dragon on top of one of the pyramids, but for now he hasn't flown from his lair. But speaking of the bay. It's odd. The ships. There's a lot of ships in the
5: bay. Brendan, are you there? I think we might have lost Brendan's audio feed. We'll try to get him back, but wow, drama, dragons, and death all around, and radio estros in the heart of the action. Let's turn back to Yokeboy now to get an update on how Barristan Selmy is faring against the herons.
4: Yeah, and the cavalry are engaging as we speak, and it's looking like a massacre. Barristan, riding Daenerys' silver, has already beheaded a heron, and now he's ridden into a heron's stilt, and he's lost balance and knocked over three more. Lady Gwyn, this is a mummer's farce, the red sun is right in the heron's eyes, they are blinded and weakened whilst trying to fight on these preposterous wooden stilts. Sir Barristan Selmy's battlefield experience is proving priceless today.
5: And what chance do the herons have now?
4: The herons have no chance, Lady Gwyn No chance at all. Little Pigeon, their leader, is now trying to run. Oh, but it looks like the red lamb has just caught him. And he's begging for mercy, telling the red lamb that he'll earn a rich ransom. I come for blood,
3: not for gold.
4: Did you hear that? The Red Lamb has just smashed his head in with a mace. And looking behind me, the Unsullied are coming through the gates and they're forming. The Yunkai have now missed their chance for a counterattack. And amidst all the chaos, I can see ships in the bay. Some of them are cogs, the merchant ships, but they're going to hit the blockade. Maybe this
3: is the Volantine fleet.
5: I think Brendan might be able to tell us if we can get him back. Brendan, can you hear me?
3: Yes, Lady Quinn. Can, can you hear me now?
5: Yes, you're coming in loud and clear.
3: Great. Sorry I lost you there earlier. Like I was trying to say before, there's a lot of ships out in the water now. It's it's a lot more than we we're there this morning. Big tubs of ships. They almost look like merchant cogs out of the Stepstones. But I can almost confirm without a doubt that this isn't the Valentine fleet. Maybe it's a resupply convoy coming up from Yunkai or New. Did you hear that? The big merchant ships just rammed the Yunkish and Karthine ships out on Slaver's Bay. The Yunkish and Karthine galleys are now sinking in the bay, and now it looks like there's a fleet of smaller ships behind this big cogs. Wait, they're unfurling batters. I can't make it out from here, maybe Yolkboy has a better angle.
5: Yoke boy, back to you, what do you see?
3: I think I can see dragon banners! Whose fleet is this? I'm
4: now close to Baristan, who was looking apprehensive! But after the cogs hit the blockade, he started to look more hopeful. This is not the Volantine fleet. I'm hearing that the ships have squids on their sails. Kraken! It's the Ironborn! From out of nowhere, the Ironborn have arrived!
2: And Barristan is about to speak! They are on our side. The Sellsaws did not come to meet our charge because they were already preoccupied with the Ironborn. It's like Baylor Breakspear and Prince Makar. The hammer and the anvil. We have them! We have them!
5: So, unbelievable scenes in Marine. Sir Barriston is ecstatic. The Ironborn have landed and seem to be fighting for his cause. Ed, we're hearing the fleet is led by Victorion Greyjoy. The action is intense. We need to take a breath, and while we're waiting for updates from our correspondents, it's time for a short feature we've prepared. Earlier we considered the fickleness of sellswords, and now we're going to take a look at one who seems fickle, even by the standards of the mercenaries themselves, as we consider the question, who is Brown Ben Plum? Mm-hmm. Ben Plum is the current commander of the Second Sons, who claims to be the veteran of a hundred battles and a former bodyguard of the Paul family of Marine. It was apparently he who suggested infiltrating Marine through the sewer network, a plan allegedly inspired by his one time escape from the sword of Marinese champion Osnak Zopal. Plum claims to be part Bravosi, part Summer Islander, part Ibenice, Part Cahoric, part Dothraki, part Dornish, and part Westerosi. Since joining up with Daenerys Targaryen, he's been heard to claim that he has a drop of dragon blood as well. This odd claim seems to have been inspired by the fact that Queen Daenerys's dragons have a certain fondness for him. But where could such a claim originate? We did a little research, and it appears that Brown Ben Plum might be telling the truth and may be possessed of not one, but two drops of dragon blood. During the reign of the fourth Aegon, known as the Unworthy, his beautiful cousin Elena married the elderly Lord Osifer Plum at the king's request. While Lord Osifer died on their wedding night, reportedly after beholding his young wife's naked beauty, the princess conceived a child was born some time afterwards, and named Viserys after the former king. While it's pure speculation on our part, we might note that Elena's brother, Baylor the Blessed, had kept her confined in the Maiden Vault during her youth, and it could be gratitude to her uncle for achieving her release that led to her choosing his name for her son. The timing of the young Plum's birth led to the legendary tale of Ossifer Plum's six-foot-long member as clearly many speculated that the babe was born too late to have been conceived whilst old Ossifer still walked the earth. It is a belief held by many in the Westerlands that Elena's child was in fact fathered by none other than her cousin Aegon the King. It must have been a younger son of this Lord Viserys who made his way across the Narrow Sea, there to begin the mongrelized cadet branch of House Plum from which sprang Ben of the Second Sons. One interesting fact we've learned from our sources is that it's Queen Daenerys's white dragon who seems to have developed the strongest bond with Plum. That dragon, known as Viserion, was hatched from a cream-and-gold egg. A close look at the Westerosi history books has revealed that Elena Targaryen's most cherished possession was a dragon egg of those same colors a curious fact that can only make us wonder at the mysterious origins of Daenerys Targaryen's three dragon eggs. So this sellsword of uncertain birth and checkered past was reputed to be one of Queen Daenerys's most trusted captains, but she learned the lesson to never trust in sellswords too late. As we mentioned, Brown Ben Plum and the Second Sons have turned their cloaks once more, going over to the Yunkai when the Queen confessed, that she could not control her dragons, and thus would not be loosing them in the imminent battle. At present, the Second Sons are part of the forces besieging Marine, and Ben Plum has been spotted in the slave markets and amusing himself with games of Savas, whilst awaiting orders from the current Yunkish Supreme Commander for the battle to come. Okay, I'm just hearing in my ear, yes, it's time to turn our attention back to the Yunkai. Brendan, Yokbo gave a pretty thrilling report of what's happening among Barristan soldiers, but we're hearing it's a very different atmosphere among the Second Sons. Is that right?
3: Yeah, that's right, Lady Gwyn. The Second Sons are almost being lazy about getting ready for war. A few of the sales sorts have told me that they're simply being thorough in their preparations, but there seems no sense of urgency among the... Hang on, Lady Gwyn. One of the saleswaters just announced that the Mother's Men, one of the Marinese Free companies, just destroyed the trebuchet known as Ghost. Can we get Yolk Boy to confirm that?
5: Yolk Boy, did you see? Yeah, I just
4: saw it! The Mother's Men cut through the long lances like a rotten stick, and then dragged chains around the trebuchet to pull it down! An amazing turn of
5: events for Barrison's army! And this is really turning into a bloodbath for young Kai. Their superior numbers and siege weapons have not helped them at all in this battle, right, Brendan?
3: Not in the least. And now with the Unsullied formed up and marching south against the Yunkish lines while the Ironborn cleave a path towards Meereen, it looks to be growing more and more desperate for the Yunkish. And Lady Gwyn, I can now also confirm something that seemed utterly improbable when we first started broadcasting. Tyrion Lannister, the Imp, is indeed outside of Meereen with the Second Sons. He's outside in full view of everyone. Perhaps he thinks that everyone's focus is on something besides an escaped slave.
5: Tyrion Lannister with the Second Sons? Now that's wholly unexpected. We can only wonder how he ended up in Marine. Perhaps one day we can broadcast that story. Okay, so with the Unsullied marching against the Yonkish Southern camp, I think the question that many of our listeners have is, what's going on with the dragons?
3: Well, the one dragon I mentioned earlier seems to be flying over the battle out in the bay. I think I can see the other dragon atop one of the pyramids of Mirim, but there's too much dust and smoke to be certain of that.
5: Well, let's hope the excitement of war hasn't caught the attention of the dragons. And in your earlier report, you indicated that the Yunkai had set up some of their siege weapons to shoot the dragons out of the sky. Is there any evidence that this plan is being implemented? Not from
3: what I can see. Yunkish siege weapons aren't being employed in the battle at all. Instead. All of the trebuchets are still hurling bodies into the city of Meereen. From a tactical vantage point, siege weapons should now be used in the battle against Barrison's army. At the very least, the Yunka should be loading their trebuchets with...
5: Brendan! What was that?
3: I can't tell! Everyone is looking up at the sky, but there's too much dust. The Wicked Sisters just launched a batch of bodies into the air. Wait! A streak of fire just tore through the air! A dragon! It now appears that the dragon that was atop one of the pyramids of Miriam has finally joined the fray. The dragon just burned the bodies flying through the air, caught a few of them, and ate them. Two more firebodies just fell from the sky. One of them hit a yunkish horseman, causing the horse to a burst into flames. This is amazing, Lady Gwyn. The second sons are now looking into the air, stunned. Panic is rippling through the camp. There's also now a palpable smell of piss around them.
5: Well, don't blame yourself for that, Brendan. So now dragons are about to enter this battle. What drama outside of Marine,
3: Lady Gwyn? I hate to interrupt the drama, but a writer just wrote up to the command tent of the Second Sons.
5: Can you listen in to what he's saying? He
3: says that the Second Sons are to form up and attack the Ironborn landing on the beaches. He's also reporting that the Ironborn have blocked the mouth of the Skahazadan with a fire ship. I could tell from the desperation in his voice that things must be going even worse for the Yunkai than what I can see.
5: And the Yunkai seem to be in disarray and so early in this battle of fire. What are the sellswords saying, Brendan?
3: Well, it's pretty funny, actually. Inkpots, the paymaster for the Second Sons, keeps repeating that since Brown Ben Plum isn't present, that they can't do anything without his leave. Also, Inkpots reports that their horses cannot run on water, so they're going to have to decline an attack on the Ironborn for the moment. The messenger is now screaming about the Ironborn landing 100 men every minute and that Lord Gorzak commands their attack. And now the swords are arguing amongst themselves as to who Gorzak is. I think they've settled on it being putting face.
5: So, the cell swords arguing and then agreeing on the identity of Gorzak. Again, the yunkish forces seem to be uncoordinated.
3: And now it appears that the rider is riding away in a rage. This story just got a whole lot more interesting.
5: Why is that, Brendan? Can you explain the complications with the cell swords?
3: While the second sons are right that Brown Ben isn't present to give them a direct command, they're also refusing to obey orders of their higher employer. This could spell disaster for the Unka'i if their sort companies are refusing to obey orders.
5: Seven, save us! What was that noise? It sounded like 10,000 shields hitting each other.
3: Lady Gwen, it now appears that the Unsullied and the Ghiscari Legionnaires have now joined battle. At the moment, their numbers appear to be evenly matched, but the Unsullied likely have the advantage. Out at sea, things continue to be chaotic. I can see burning ships everywhere, and can hear the low roar of when the ironborn ships ram Carthi in her Yunkish vessels.
5: So, war, death, and destruction, on land and at sea. But what about in the air? Brendan, is there any sign of the white dragon?
3: Hear that sound? He's flying away. The white dragon seems to have eaten its fill for the moment, and is turned back to Meereen. But there's no telling what will happen once he grows hungry again.
5: And what about the green Dragon?
3: Well, it's pretty far from where I'm standing, but from what I can see, that dragon is still circling over the naval battle going on in Slaver's Bay. I wouldn't want to sound alarmist, but if a dragon or bird is circling something, it might mean that it's planned to swoop down on what it considers prey. And if the dragon does attack, it'll be one of the most amazing and terrifying sights I've ever seen.
5: Well, it does sound like Marine is witnessing one terrifying event after the other.
3: Do you hear that, Lady Gwynn? Brown Ben Plum just rode into camp and walked into the Command Tent. I'm going to try and follow and see if I can discover what the hell is going on. Okay, it seems like Ben Plum is discussing their new orders.
5: So, Brown Ben Plum has received orders from the Yunkish Command and is now talking them through with his Second Sons. A lot of the Yunkish hope now rests on their cell swords. What are those orders, Brendan?
3: Well, the Second Sons are ordered to defend the Wicked Sister from the Unsullied. Also, the Girl General is still retaining command and control for the moment. Everyone seems very uneasy about this order. Most of the grumblings revolve around how ineffectual it is to use cavalry to defend a fixed position. Inkpots is suggesting that ranged weapons are the way to defend the trebuchet, and that the Girl General is ordering the Second Sons to dismount, it will negate the mobility advantage of them as cavalry. And guess who just rode into the camp of the Second Sons now?
5: Well, we're wondering in the studio if it could be another Yunkish rider with new contradictory orders from a new Yunkish commander?
3: How'd you guess? The rider just strode into the tent with a brand new set of orders for the Second Sons. Two Gascari Legions and Bloodbeard's Company of the Cat are holding a defensive position in front of the trebuchet known as the Harpy's Daughter. The Second Sons are now ordered to swing around the Unsullied and take them from the rear while the Legionnaires and swords fix the Unsullied in place.
5: And that seems a better usage of the strengths of the Second Sons. But is it too little too late? And more importantly, who gave this new order? Isn't that the third order they've received?
3: Yeah, it's the third order they've received in the past hour. It very well might be too little too late, but the messengers just dropped a bit of a bomb on everyone here. Gorzak is dead. Apparently he was murdered by the Tattered Prince. The Windblown now appear to have turned on the Yunkai and are with Barristan. So tack on about 2,000 heavy cavalry to his total force.
5: That's unbelievable news! We have confirmation that the Yunkish commander has been murdered. There's rumors it was at the hands of the tattered prince, and he turns cloak with his windblown company. Sell swords proving fickle yet again. And Brendan, who is the new Yunkish commander?
3: The new commander's name is Morgar, who is known as the Drunken Conqueror by the Swords. is now apparently in charge according to this messenger.
5: So, Morgar, the Drunken Conqueror, now seems to be in charge of the Yunkai. It sounds like chaos in the higher ranks. What exactly is happening in the Yunkish chain of command?
3: My best guess, two Yunkai, Morgar and the Girl General are both issuing contradictory orders in a time when Yunkai is in dire need of unity of command. Wait, something's happening. The Yunkish messenger just identified Tyrion Lannister as an escaped slave. He's demanding his return to captivity, and that he be sent back to...
5: We hear violence, Brynden! What happened? Was that blood being shed?
3: A large, burly man just unsheathed the sword and killed the Yunkish messenger. Blood is now seeping into the Sybaz pieces of Brown Ben Plum's Sybas table. Tyrion Lannister just picked up the white dragon piece soaked in blood, and now Brown Ben is addressing the man in his tent. All hail our beloved Queen Daenerys! We have always been the Queen's
4: men. Rejoining the Yunkai was just a plot.
5: And with that, it appears that the Second Sons have turned their cloaks yet again and ride out for war against Yunkai. Okay, Brendan and Boy, our producers are telling me they want you back in the studio. It's getting too dangerous out there.
4: Does untuttle symbolism appeal to you? Do you want to hint at future events to your readers? Do you need a board game that's not only full of fun, but full of foreshadowing? Then do we have the game for you! Savas is the board game with a twist. Only the sharpest minds may partake, for Savas has 10 different pieces and the aim is to kill the king. It's somewhat similar to the real Game of Thrones, being played by our political leaders the world over. And just make sure you keep those dragons. They're the most powerful pieces on the board. But you don't have to be a warrior to conquer this game, oh no. Even small men can play. Small men can cast very large shadows. Just make sure those shadows are foreshadows. Savas, where a high level strategy game comes to life.
5: Okay, so we've spirited our correspondence back to the studio for some analysis and speculation. We've taken the Battle of Fire up to the last of George's sample chapters and readings, and we really hope you enjoyed the presentation. Before we talk to Boy and Brendan, we just want to give some credit where it's due. We had participants from five different podcasts involved in our production today, and we loved the collaboration. So thanks so much to Aziz from History of Westeros podcast for the look at the Ghiscari region. And thanks to Stephen Atwell from the Race for the Iron Throne blog for his input about the Unsullied. Thanks also to Valkyrist from the Vassals of Kingsgrave podcast for providing the voice of Barristan Selmy. And last but not least, thanks to Brendan Beefish. The preceding presentation was based largely on his excellent work on the Battle of Fire. He has a great essay series on his Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog called A Dragon Dawn, a complete analysis of the upcoming Battle of Fire. And we highly recommend you taking a look at that.
4: Yeah, it's an excellent essay series. So go and take a look at Brynden's War and Politics of Ice and Fire blog. And Brynden also co-wrote this episode with us, even down to those adverts from Marine, And we all had a really fun time making this episode.
5: Yes, we did. It was a blast and well worth the extra effort. And so now we're going to have that chat with Yoke Boy and Brendan B. Fish. And first of all, how are you, Brynden? It's great to have you back on Radio Westeros. Hey,
3: Lady Gwen. Thanks for having me. Uh was a... A lot of fun recording those last segments for the uh, the show, and it's cool to be back to do a little uh, post-episode discussion.
5: Great. All right. We're excited for this. Uh, since you were a guest last time on our Stannis episode, you've started podcasting yourself, haven't you? Do you want to tell our listeners um, a little bit about that, maybe?
3: Yeah. We started doing our own podcast a few months ago. The uh, the four of us on the on the blogging team, uh, Nifriel, something like a lawyer, Militant Penguin, and I all kind of have a podcast dedicated to political, military, and pseudo-historical analysis of the series. In um, the topics that we've covered so far, we've done Rhaegar Targaryen, in which we take kind of a uh, deconstructionist approach to Rhaegar. Um, and we've also done a two-part series on the murdered and the missing, which talks about the different murder mysteries and the different missing persons in uh, Westeros and Essos. And then uh, we're also talking about the new uh, sample chapter from The Winds of Winter, which is if you're listening up to this point, I'm assuming that you're in the know since you said you're good with spoilers. It's uh, it's on the Elaine chapter. Um, some of the other topics we're thinking about for the future are um, the War Criminals of Westeros, where we'll be talking about some of the um, atrocities and the people who committed war crimes in this series, uh, and some of those who aren't actually as well-known, like Huster Tully and, uh, controversially, in my opinion, uh, Wyman Manderley as well. And uh, we're also talk- thinking about doing a topic called... Um, Rit Small, which is about uh, some of the characters and how they'll their transition in the Winds of Winter will be primarily um, based in becoming the character like their fathers or those that preceded them in kind of a um, a character sense.
5: Okay, yeah, like Tyrion is Tywin Rit Small. That's yeah, Tyrion thing. is
3: Tyrion yeah. is Tywin, and uh, Daenerys is potentially Arris the Second, and other characters like that.
5: Okay, uh, that'll be interesting. but kind of.
3: A, yeah, on the other side, though, it's also kind of, um, uh, you know, like Jamie Lannister is becoming more Arthur Dane than the Smiling Knight. So there mm-hmm. is actually transitions from bad to good. It's supposed to just right. simply from good to bad.
5: Right. And not necessarily within the family.
3: So. Right.
5: Okay. Cool. That'll be good. Well, we've enjoyed the others. So we look forward to that. So now um, we're going to look over the Battle of Fire and crack some pots together. Um, Starting with Brendan, we saw a flame being lit on the Great Pyramid after Barristan's speech. Then he rides out, changes his lines, and goes for the herons. How about if we start by you explaining to us what's going on there? Well, so in the Battle of
3: Fire, in The Dance of Dragons, we're left with bodies hitting um, Meereen. and then at the start of the winter and the sample chapter that was released in the paperback edition for Dancer Dragons, the Barrison chapter. Um, Barrison is out there. He's preparing his men. He has all his men assembled at the uh, the market gate, and um, so he has a. It, it doesn't. It's not revealed to the reader until close to the end of the book, but he has a series of signals that are prepared for to signal the attack. Barrison realizes that he has to get out there and attack Yunkai or else the spreading chaos of all the bodies hitting Mirin is just going to eliminate any chance of him um, being able to control the battlefield and being able to win the battlefield would Be uh, be the ultimate goal. So, and, and it's kind of funny, you know, we're, we're, we're so used to, in the modern world, to cell phones and computers the internet and podcasting. But, you know, in, in the world of medieval warfare and also Selmy and Selmy and Westeros and kind of the pseudo-medieval warfare uh, realm – Uh, There's no radios or or cell phones to direct when an attack will begin, so they generally chose periods of time um, and a lot of signals to dictate when they were going to do certain things. Um, And at this time, they chose both. Uh, They used the signal, which is the burning on top of the pyramid, which signaled the start of the attack. And the signal on top of the burning pyramid was done at dawn. So the the Great Pyramid is where would have the highest point in the in the area, so they would be able to see. Um, when dawn is right, when the sun is actually rising and, uh, and around Meereen. Um So Barrison's attack is based on he needs to get out quickly and he needs to move his army quickly into uh, the Yunkish lines, specifically his cavalry. Um, and the reason he's doing that is he's trying to get the Unsullied to march out of Meereen and form a spear wall to go. Actually, he, They're actually the main line of effort here. Barrison's actually doing a, a diversion. He's hoping to distract Yunkai long enough for them to, uh, for his army to actually form up. And that's actually the main element. That's the, um, in, in terms of military um, strategy and tactics they talk about, that, that's the primary line of effort, essentially, is, is the Unsullied. Uh, so the Unsullied are supposed to march out and form an advance on the enemy as soon as Barrison is able to provide that kind of gap. Uh, So the Yunkish don't actually attack the Unsullied as they're marching out of the gates because the Unsullied, as we talked about in the podcast, are only as good as their unit and their discipline.
5: Okay, so clearly the Unsullied Spearwall is very important to the Marinese defense. Um, And then we see the pit fighters coming out of the gates. boy, what's happening there? Well,
4: they were making a real racket. point is made of this in the notes from this chapter that we have from the readings that George has made and it seems like they're there to just cause a huge distraction they come out and there's, there's about 200 of them I think but it says they're making the noise of 2000 so you know something's going on here and they're really a kind of distraction so the Unsullied can kind of creep out and start forming the Kai are so kind of disorganized they're in disarray and you've got these pit fighters like Pariston sees a woman pit fighter, like almost naked with, with her breasts out, <laughs> come out of the gates and she has a, she has a um, snake around her neck. So you you can imagine the Yunkish in their disorganization not really knowing what the hell is going on and seeing these, you know, perhaps what they think is 2,000 fearsome pit fighters coming out when it's really, you know, 200.
3: It would have been totally terrifying. I mean, that's the idea, too, is that they're using the pit fighters to um, just distract and terrify the Yunkish and just distract them from the fact that the Unsullied are marching out behind Barristan's cavalry and the... um, Uh, and the pit fighters as well. So I I really like that kind of the naked pit fighter with the snake around her neck. Uh, Mm. It it would totally distract every single yonkish fighter on on the scene. I think uh, it distracts Barristan
4: for a second. Oh, yeah.
5: yeah. So it's a new meaning to the term shock and awe, perhaps. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Okay, so there's those sort of um, two-pronged distraction attack there that they have going on. Uh, we learned that the Ghost of Astapor, or Trebuchet, got pulled down by the Mother's Men. And it seems like the Trebuchets could have been great weapons for the Yankai. They certainly put a lot of effort um, into getting them in place. It was a big engineering feat, as we mentioned. Um, but they seemed rather ineffective in the actual battle.
3: Yeah, that's – it's really interesting. The trebuchets are great siege weapons, and historically in medieval uh, warfare, you know, they would use trebuchets to knock down walls or preach uh, castle gates and other things like that. Um, but Yunkai decided on a different path. They decided to use these weapons as weapons of terror uh, to compel the surrender of Meereen. Potentially, we're not really given any indication why they're actually throwing diseased bodies into the city. Um but the funny thing is, after the battle commences, the Youngish really just they keep throwing bodies at, at the city without utilizing their weapons for um, for the the army that's approaching and it's just tearing them to pieces. I mean, and you know, it, there's there's an argument to be made that maybe the siege weapons aren't going to be as super effective against um, Barrison's army, but at the same time, it's really. Uh, just a poor use of it to just continue continue form essentially just throwing bodies into the city it's symptomatic of their disorganization isn't it yeah it really is it, it's totally um the Yunkish being just not giving good orders i mean we saw in the battle itself how they got um how the second sense received three sets of completely contradictory orders uh, from the different young Yunkish commanders on the battlefield um so the, the trebuchets aren't being used effectively. And then, you know, in Tyrion, at the end of A Dance of Dragons, he notices that you have all these uh, Magonels and Scorpions, these kind of smaller siege weapons that are being, um, you know, they're aiming towards the sky towards the dragons uh, in, in hopes of kind of... Um, knocking a dragon from the sky by some fluke. Right. But the, the thing is, like, we don't see evidence of them being used in by the Yunkish in the battle against um, the, two, the two dragons that are now engaged in the battle. Or, and we actually don't even see it being used to defend their trebuchets as well. I think it was um, Inkpots who says something like, you know, using um, uh, skirmishing weapons like mangonels and scorpions and crossbows and and archers is the way to defend a fixed point. Um, But these, they're not being really used at all, um, as far as we can tell.
5: So then... The ironborn arrive, uh, sending their stolen merchant ships, crashing through the barricades of the Yunkai. Yeah, this was
4: perfect timing, both in story and, you know, for the reader, for the kind of element of surprise, maybe part of your brain is forgotten. And, you know, sh- Victorian shows up with his stolen ships and kind of just uses it as a battering ram. And he, he's kind of laid behind this first line. So all these kind of rather worthless smaller ships just get used and trashed to take down the barricade. And a Victorian is sat safely behind. And then, he, he of course, he lands and he engages with the Yunkai and there was reports of dropping, a, I think it was 100 men a minute. And uh, the Yunkai just don't know how to deal with it. Again, their disorganisation is like their Achilles heel. And um, the swords are ordered to engage and they hesitate, which is interesting. And so Yunkai are really fighting on different fronts now. And this is what Barristan says. He says, it's like the hammer and the anvil. We have them. So they're between two major fronts, the Yunkai. Uh, they are kind of been taken in the rear by this surprise attack. And they just don't know what to do with it. Their sellswords do not want to fight the ironborn.
5: And speaking of swords, then we have the windblown and the second sun's turning cloak. So just how much of a blow is that to the Yunkai?
3: Well, it's a really serious blow uh, for a number of reasons. The macro one is that now we have uh, Yunkish, you have armies and units in the Yunkai's lines who are disloyal are well-trained and good soldiers who are now in their rear. So uh, picture this. The Yunkish have the Unsullied pushing up against them to the directly their front. To their left flank and to their rear, they have the Ironborn that are just cleaving through them um, from Slaver's Bay. And then behind them now, we have the Windblown and the Second Sons that are a, a very strong cavalry force that are in their rear. Like, it's a terrible situation. For for Yunkai and they lose the speed of the cavalry units, don't they? They do, yeah. They the really interesting thing is that the, the Yunkish now no longer have any strong cavalry force. In the Tyrion two chapter from the Winds of Winter, we're told that um, the long lances are have been destroyed by Marcelin's men by one of the Free Company. Um, so now they just have a completely, at least in the South Camp, a, a total infantry force there with two large cavalry forces in their rear, the Ironborn to their left and the Unsullied pushing against them to their front. The camp is in total chaos.
5: Okay, so chaos and disorganization from the Yunkai, boons for the Marinese. But as we know, in A Song of Ice and Fire, things can change. So now let's talk about what might happen next. And let's start with the Pit Fighters. We talked about them creating chaos on the battlefield, but it's kind of strange they're fighting for Baristan. It's really
3: strange they're fighting for Barristan. It's, it's one of those things that we, I learned in the military kind of early on was that if your attack is going really well, it's probably an ambush. So uh, what is the actual role of the pit fighters in this battle itself? Now, we think, outwardly they're fighting, they're creating chaos in the Yunkish lines with the Merenese. But are they actually loyal to Barristan? Uh, or are they loyal to the Sons of the Harpy or, or to Histars of Lorac? Uh, one of the things that Barristan hears in the initial charge is that he hears the pit fighters shouting for uh, for his Darzolora. So it might not be as uh, transparent. They might not be as loyal to Barristan as they seem. Um, and they might have some reasons why they're not loyal to Barristan as well. One of those reasons that comes up is that Barristan has kept the uh, the fighting pits closed in Meereen. But also, Barristan killed their best fighter. They killed Kraz in that famous scene from A Dance of Dragons. And um, so they have an economic motive and they also have a, a personal motive as well to knock Barristan out of power. Uh, the Sons of the Harpy, though, being this kind of secretive insertion organization, could be feeding them information and also feeding them orders as well as to what they're supposed to do out on the battlefield. Um, you know, the Sons of the Harpy likely derived from the great masters of Murines, So we're looking at, um, uh, we're looking at, them potentially giving the pit fighters orders to go out and just kind of, well, honestly, to kill Barriston when they have a chance or to take a shot at Barristan. Um, and so one of the things I was thinking when I did like the essay series a, about a year ago is that there's a, you know, Barristan has this kind of low opinion of cell swords, but he starts kind of admiring them during the battle. He's, he sees uh, Jokin and the widower, and he starts thinking about how um, how good of a fighters they are. And I thought it'd be kind of funny. And I agree with you guys from your last podcast. I don't think Barrison's going to die in the Battle of Fire. So I was curious of whether the Seltzer is going to save his life from the pit fighters who are out for blood on behalf of the Sons of the Harpy.
4: Mm, That's a really interesting thought, Brendan. And I just want to mention on the subject of pit fighters, Strong Belwas. What has happened to him? Because we did actually see him on the War Council for the Miranese. Now, he took a hit when the locusts were poisoned, but George has chosen to keep him alive. So we think there must be a reason for that because the poisoning would have obviously been more effective to read if he died. So we're wondering, you know, what could happen to Strong Belwus? Could he offer some protection to Barristan? Like... um, Brendan said with the sail swords. We just don't know, but um, he's one to watch for sure.
5: Yeah, okay, so we'll keep our eyes on that situation. And now let's talk a little bit more about the future of Victorian Greyjoy. He shows up and he thinks he's going to marry Danny and he has this dragon horn. Um, Euron seems to be playing him somehow, so there are many question marks here. What do we think could happen now that he's in Marine?
4: Well, if he does survive and I tend to think that he'll be all right for a while anyway, but when Danny does eventually arrive back in Marine, you know, she might have a choice to take Victorion's smoking hand in marriage.
7: <laughs> um,
4: <laughs> in order to gain, you know, transportation to take her army back to Westeros, which is something we're going to discuss later. So Danny might have a difficult decision, as she did with the marriage of his star. So we'll have to see where that goes. But I think we're in agreement. I think me and Brendan have different ideas, but uh, I think we both agree that he's not going to be around for too long. Poor Vic.
3: Yeah, I, I kind of look at uh, Victarion Greyjoy as uh, – I, I mean, I look at him in relation to what George has said about him, like, off the books. He said uh, he said at a, um, at a interview that Victarion Greyjoy is dumb as a stump. And there's all these, like, really kind of abusing foreshadowing that goes on in A Dance with Dragons that I think kind of points to him not making it through the Battle of Fire. And, in fact, I think that he's going to be dead, dead, and then dead some more, probably eaten by a dragon – Triple dead. Yeah, triple dead. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or if you believe the theory that he was, uh, he was died and re- was reborn by Makoro, then he's uh, double dead. <laughs> killed, brought back just to be killed again. Yes. Um, I, I think that Victorian is going to be uh, at- attacked and eaten by Rhaegal. And the reason for that is that Rhaegal is the dragon that's circling over the sea battle going on. And Victorian gradually is actually staying behind his Trojan fleet and planning on blowing the dragon horn as soon as he gets the chance, and uh, there's kind of an amusing quote that Makoro has, uh, which you know he gives to Victorian, which kind of really boosts his ego, but it might have a little bit of a different implication when read from the light of Victorian's coming uh, fire and, and blood future.
5: Right, that's this one. The Lord of Light has shown me your worth, Lord Captain. Every night in my fires, I glimpse the glory that awaits you.
3: Yeah, it's it's a really it's kind of really funny if you think about it because. Victorian B- thinks, "Oh, I'm just going to have a glorious future." And I think there's another quote too about him, like striding through uh, the fire, carrying the, uh, um, a, whole, a um, an axe dripping with blood, uh, which to me is is more Macaro just being like, hey, "Victorian, you're going to die horrifically in the Battle of Fire." Um, so what the, the question brings up, and I know we're not probably going to get into it a whole lot here, but what's actually going to happen when Victorian blows the dragon horn? Are the dragons going to be bound to him? Are they going to be bound to someone else? Are they going to go crazy? Uh, You know, I've kind of played with the idea, and I'm not 100% on board with it, but I figure it's it's worth talking about, that I think that what happens when Victorian blows the dragon horn is that the dragons aren't going to be bound to Victorian. Instead, they're going to be bound to someone else. Uh, Someone else being Euron Greyjoy, which I know is kind of controversial in some quarters, but I at least want to present the theory as as a... uh, something to, to, to talk about, to think about a little bit more. Um, one of the things I, was, I did when I wrote, wrote the essay series is that I thought about what Euron's role is what, is. what is he doing in the Reach? What is his ultimate goal and aim? And his ultimate goal and aim is to seize the Iron Throne with the use of dragons. Um, so I don't think that Euron is in the Reach. I think that he's following the Iron Fleet, following Victorian to Meereen, and, um, which I know sounds crazy, but there's actually a little bit of evidence for this as well. Yeah, why don't you take us through the evidence, Brendan? Yeah, sure. Um, one of the coolest little things is that in when George R. R. Martin was writing A Dance of Dragons, right after he published A Feast for Crows, he read a early Daenerys chapter from A Dance with Dragons, um, and this was and it's a little bit different from the published version in a really one key way. I think Lady Gwyn has the quote on it.
5: Yes, it's this one. The glass candles are burning. Soon comes the pale mare, after her will come the others, that's lowercase others. Crow and kraken, lion and griffin, the sun's sun and the mummer's dragon. Remember the undying, beware the perfumed seneschal.
4: So instead of the published kraken and the black flame, in this early version, indeed Euron does seem to have been coming along with Victorion, the crow and the kraken.
3: Right, especially since Euron is associated with the crow's eye. I mean, that's the big piece of connecting evidence for, for that part of the theory. But, you know, in, in the published version of A Dance of Dragons, there's also another prophecy as well that Makoro gives to, to Tyrion. Uh, when Tyrion asks him, is, is talking to Makoro about the things that he's looking in his flames, uh, he asks Makoro something interesting.
5: He says, Have you seen these others in your fires? Only their shadows, Makoro said, one most of all, a tall and twisted thing with one black eye and ten long arms sailing on a sea of blood. So that
3: is another one of those kind of um, prophecies that shows the potential for a Euron um, coming for Daenerys. We know that Euron wants Daenerys um, and he's associated with the one black eye shining with malice, according to Theon. And he's sailing on a sea of blood. So there's all sorts of kind of this imagery and prophetic imagery that is seems to indicate that Euron is coming for Daenerys. That he's not simply being stationary in the reach, just waiting for Danny to come to him. But I know that's controversial, and I'm not 100% sold on the theory either. It's definitely an interesting thought. It's definitely uh, I like hearing interesting ideas,
4: and it's one that I think you know plausible. It's it's I'm not completely sold on it. But um, I'm really glad that you've uh, brought this one to the fandom, Brynden.
5: Yeah, thanks. So, okay, so we have different options for Victorion, Greyjoy. And we mentioned the Dragonhorn, so let's not forget Viserion and Rhaegal. We heard in the presentation that Viserion is eating corpses in midair. This is very ominous.
3: Yeah, it's really ominous. Um, so we, we talked about it that we're going to be cracking some pots the, at the get-go, but I don't think this next part is all that crack potty. Uh, so we know that Barrissons' attack is going really well. Uh, they're destroying trebuchets left and right. And then we also know from Tyrion's chapter that Viserion just flew back to Meereen after he's eaten his fill of corpses that are flying through the air. But here's a question. There's actually two questions. What happens when Viserion grows hungry again? And then what happens when the trebuchets stop flinging corpses into Meereen after Barrison and his armies destroy all the trebuchets?
5: Hmm, yeah, we have this quote. They will come, Sir Barriston might have said. The noise will bring them, the shouts and screams, the scent of blood. That will draw them to the battlefield, just as the roar from Daznak's pit drew Drogon to the Scarlet Sands. But when they come, will they know one side from the other? Somehow he did not think so.
4: Yes, I doubt they'll know which side is which either. And an interesting thing is that Viserion must now have a taste for human flesh.
3: Yeah, so now the thing is that the dragons, um, they don't have a ready source of corpses flying through the air. But, you know, there is a ready source of humans that are underneath of them engaged in a massive battle, um, both at sea and on land. And, you know, the funny thing is, too, I think I said it in the broadcast itself, uh, Regal Tyrion reports that Rhaegal is circling around the Iron Fleet and the, um, the Slaver Fleet out, in Iron, uh, out on Slaver's Bay. And that kind of, when I was thinking about it, it kind of was reminiscent of kind of vultures or different birds of prey that circle um, their prey or things that they're hunting. Uh, so to me, I have a very strong feeling that all hell is about to break loose out on Slaver's Bay when Rhaegal descends and all hell is about to break loose. In the battle itself, when Viserion descends on the battle, when he grows hungry again,
4: and is that why you think Victarion might be eaten?
3: Because yeah, of circling. That's actually a really good point. I didn't think about that originally, but as we were talking and doing the bro- doing the broadcast and the recording, yeah, it really makes sense that Rhaegal becomes hungry and eats Victarion because he grows t- has gets a taste of human flesh in, during the battle.
5: Okay, so some very grim theorizing about Victarion there. And another factor to consider is that a very large volunteer fleet is on its way to Marine. The Yunkai had thought that when they show up, it's all over. Their Voluntine allies would guarantee them victory.
4: Yeah, that's right. But it might not be so straightforward, we think, because these volunteer ships are being rowed by slaves. So we think it's possible that there could be a mutiny. And I've got some quotes here. Okay? The red priest is calling on the Volantines to go to war, the half-maester told him, but on the side of right are soldiers of the Lord of Light. And then we also have this. Benero has sent forth word from Volantis. Her coming is the fulfilment of an ancient prophecy. From smoke and salt she was born to make the world anew. She is Azor High returned. So, the indication is that Bonero thinks that Danny is Azura High. He must be telling his slave people at his preaching sessions this. Word is spreading. And so, have these rowers on these Valentine fleets heard that and could they mutiny? What do you think, Bridden?
3: Yeah, and that's the reason why the Valentines might revolt out on Slaver's Bay. Um, Victorian doesn't have a whole lot of ships. He has 54 ships that he's taking into battle. And these ships in the Victorian sample chapter, or the one that was read, are packed with soldiers. So there's not really a lot of room for um, D- Danny's army and Danny's people to get on board their ships and sail to Westeros. But Victorian observes 300 to 500 ships being loaded with supplies. And these ships are bound for Meereen. And if the rowers revolt and knock off all their slave masters, well, then there's a lot of room for Danny to transport herself and her army across Slaver's Bay and across the narrow sea into Westeros.
5: Okay, so the thinking is that Danny could make use of both of these fleets. And it seems like a lot of things are going in favor of the Marinese in this battle. They've had their share of boons. So, what if George tries to level things out? One idea that Brendan had is that there could be a surprise appearance from the Dothraki.
3: Yeah, and this kind of continues along with the whole idea that if your attack is going really well, it's probably an ambush. Um, So throughout Dance with Dragons, various PvE characters such as Barristan, Daenerys, Tyrion, and Victarion all mention various Dothraki khalasars that are transiting towards Meereen. Um, The two biggest ones are Pono, and Pono being a khal that is the most feared among the khalas on the Dothraki Sea, and there's a number of khalasars, smaller khalasars, that are fleeing Pono's khalasar. The other one is Jaco's khalasar, which Daenerys encounters at the end of A Dance of Dragons. Um, Yunkai also is calling for Tothraki calisars to come to Meereen to bring slaves to the slave market near Meereen so they could sell their slaves to the Yunkish. And then Ricaro scouts out a massive Tethraki khalasar near Meereen just before Daenerys flies away on, on Drogon's back. So... One of the things I was thinking about is, well, you know, things are going awfully well. Even if Barrison, if, if an attempt is made on Barrison's life, that might not be the real uh, game changer in the battle. But what could be a game changer in the battle is if a Dethraki Kalizar arrives on the battlefield just as Barrison and his army are about to win. Um, one of the now, like, an objection might be made that the. Kallassar in question that's coming to, to Meereen is Jaco's Kallassar, which Daenerys encounters, which I, I think you guys are going to talk about next time around, but might have some major implications for the Winds of Winter for Daenerys and arc. But more intriguingly, I think it could be Pono's Kallassar that shows up outside of Meereen. And imagine this, you have a massive battle going on outside of Meereen's gates between tens of thousands of infantry, 5,000 Unsullied, cavalry, all these things, and all of a sudden a Dothraki khalasar of 20,000 shows up, all horsemen um, engaged, and they're looking across the battlefield, and they see this huge infantry host and this huge cavalry host assembled on opposite sides. It's very possible that the Dothraki could charge the unsighted, charge Barristan's army. And that is such a
4: good thought, isn't it? I mean, obviously quite horrible, but... As a reader, this is what we want—the excitement. A cohort 2.0. Is this what you're thinking, Brendan?
3: Yeah, it could resemble cohort, and that's that's pretty exciting in terms of battlefields.
5: Hmm. Yes. Okay. So some very exciting possibilities. But after war is said and done, what will life be like inside Marine? We've had the shave pates brazen beasts have been in the city during the war, and we know that the shave pate doesn't like his dar. That's putting it mildly. <laughs> what, what sort of city will Barristan return to if the war is won? Well,
4: Brynden's got some really good ideas, so I think we should hand over to him. He, his theory is called the Day of the Long Knives.
3: I don't know if it's a good theory. It's it's a pretty tragic theory, if, if you think about it. Um, you know, in A Dance with Dragons, the shape hate is consistently counseling Daenerys towards violence and towards committing uh, very horrific acts in order to bring peace to to um, and, and this also continues when Daenerys flies away to Barrison as well. So it's not like that the, the Shape has had a change of heart at any point in time during the story. Um, he's consistently counseling Daenerys and Barrison to um not, not negotiate with the great masters, but to actually put them put them down very violently and very cruelly. Um, and there's a number of really interesting quotes from A Dance with Dragons that really kind of speak to Skahaz's mentality and how to deal with the great masters.
5: Yes, there's this. Your grace has not asked for my counsel, said Skahaz's shaved pate, but I say that blood must pay for blood. Take one man from each of the families I have named and kill him, The next time one of yours is slain, take two from each great house and kill them both. There will not be a third murder. And then there's this Danny studied the scroll. All the ruling families of Marine were named Hazkar, Marek, Khazar, Zak, Razdar, Gazin, Pal, even Reznak and Lorak. What am I to do with a list of names? Every man on that list has kin within the city. Sons and brothers, wives and daughters, mothers and fathers. Let my brazen beasts seize them. Their lives will win you back those ships.
3: Yeah, so it's really, it seems that Skahaz's mentality is simply to use violence to achieve his ends, but it's not just violence against the the people who are likely behind the Sons of the Harpy attacks and the insurgency itself. Skahaz consistently counsels violence against people who are innocents in the story, Specifically, the child hostages that Daenerys takes as pages and cupbearers early in A Dance with Dragons to try to prevent further Sons of the Harpy attacks. Um, And after a particularly gruesome attack by the Sons of the Harpy, Skahas counsels Daenerys to kill the child hostages in response to that attack by the Sons of the Harpy.
5: Right. He says, The Sons of the Harpy are laughing in their pyramids. What good are hostages if you will not take their heads?
3: It's so you, you get that sense that Skahaz really is bloodthirsty. And that bloodthirstiness doesn't end when Daenerys leaves Mirene and doesn't end when the peace is made within the city. Um, in fact, he brings it up again to Barristan as soon as Barristan starts his conspiring to remove his Darzolorak from power.
5: Yeah, here's that passage. We have hostages as well, Skahaz Shavepate pate reminded him. If the slavers kill one of ours, we kill one of theirs. For a Moment, Sir Barristan did not know whom he meant. Then it came to him the Queen's cupbearers, hostages, insisted Skahaz Mokandak, Grazdar and Keza are the blood of the Green Gase, Mizara is of Marek, Kezmaya is Pal, Azak Gazin, Bakaz is Lorak, Hisdar's own kin. All are sons and daughters of the pyramids Zak, Kazar, Ulez, Hazkar, Dazak, Yerezan. All children of the great masters.
3: So that Skahaz brings up killing the child hostages again is not insignificant. And then the other thing that goes into it: so we have the great masters, we have the child hostages, but Skahaz has a particular hatred for his Dorzo um, He counsels Danny against marrying him at the at the outset. In fact, funny enough, Skahaz actually uh, offers himself up as a consort for Daenerys, but he's rejected. Uh, by Danny because she realizes that he's a man of blood and that will that he will be someone who will not fulfill her political aims in Murin itself. So after Danny leaves again, um you know they they do that coup as you guys talked about in your last episode and they take um they, they kill Kras and they take Hisdar prisoner and they're going to try him, but first the Battle of Fire breaks out, so that's they're a little bit delayed. So Skaha's counsels Barrison to kill Hisdar Zoloric outright without a trial. But Barristan tells Hizdar "That's we're not doing that. We are not going to kill Hizdar Oloric without a tribe. We're going to wait for Daenerys to come back. But Skahaz is rebuffed by Barristan. But if he's proved guilty, Skahaz has some pretty violent ends in store for Hizdar Oloric.
5: All right. Remember he said, my word then, no harm to Hizdar till his guilt is proved. But when we have the proof, I mean to kill him with my own hands. I want to pull his entrails out and show them to him before I let him die.
3: So some real violent feeling from Skahaz to his Darzolorek. But what mitigates Skahaz in A Dance with Dragons is that he, he has a police force, essentially, in his power, but he's deterred by the larger army that Barristan and Daenerys has. But Barristan makes a very fateful decision early in the Winds of Winter that could open the pathway up for Skahas to do some dirty deeds done dirt cheap.
5: Yes, it says, The shave paid had sent his brazen beasts onto the city walls to free up the Unsullied to take the field. Should the battle be lost, it would be up to Skahaz and his men to hold Marine against the Yunkai until such time as Queen Daenerys could return.
4: So now the Shave pate can really do what he wants with the child hostages and with his daughter,
3: right, Brendan? Yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking is is going to end up being the case for what's going on inside Marine while Barristan is out fighting in the battle.
4: Yeah, Barriston is kind of being used again. We we covered this in the last episode that he'd become some part of the game, really against his kind of will. But again, that would be it. he's out fighting. And behind the wars of the Marine, there could be a Knight of the Long Knives. So thanks for that, Brendan. You're welcome. OK, now the last thing I wanted to talk about is the Pale Mare, which I think is being really underestimated by readers from reading forums and stuff. This disease, it said time and again, has a really high mortality rate. And it's kind of similar to dysentery. It's come to Marine, and there's a huge, huge, huge battle going on outside Marine's walls. Bodies are being flung. I think the Pale Mare is one to watch. I think perhaps by the time Danny gets back to Marine, not only will the Battle of Fire be in a huge devastation to Marine in one way or another, but now she'll have to think about what to do about this Pale Mare outbreak. And we'll cover that more next time because we have a Daenerys Stormborn episode in the works. And I think we'll leave it there for the Battle of Fire today. So just one final thanks to Brynden Beefish,
3: who really was more like a third member of Radio Westeros today. Cheers, Brynden. Hey, it was a, it was a big honor to be with you guys and I really enjoyed the conversation and talk. So. Hopefully we'll be able to do this again sometime. And we definitely will. But in the meantime,
4: we'll look forward to more output from the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog and podcast.
5: So that's all on the Battle of Fire. We tried to push boundaries with this podcast and we really hope you had fun listening. You can give us something back by helping spread the word. And up next, we have a look at Daenerys Targaryen, so we hope you come back soon for some more Radio Westeros. And now it's time for some credits. As always, thanks so much to George R.R. R. Martin for creating the world of Westeros. And today we use lots of sounds, so there are lots of credits. Thanks to Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com. We used Air, Prelude, Machinations, and Mysterioso March today. And thanks to Rick Van Man from musicforyourvids.co.uk. His Heading to War and Emotional Strings were used. And thanks to Producer Loops for their Symphonic Series Volume 8 scoring system, with which Yoke Boy was able to add scores to some of the sections. There were heaps of sound effects used today, so we'll put all the details in the MP3 tag and on our website. Visit radioesteros.com for full licensing details, and it's also the best place to get quick access to our podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Finally, one final shout-out to our guests, Brendan B. Fish, Stephen Atwell, Aziz, and Val Thank you so much for helping us to make this podcast. We couldn't have done it without you guys. And thanks to you listeners. for tuning in. Join us next time for some Danny and the Dragons. Bye for now!